I got the horses in the back, horse stock is attached, head is mighty black, got the bushes black. Hello and welcome back to the B-Movie Podcast. Uh, today we are back with another special episode. Um, I'm here with uh, the B-Movie Podcast co-host, Scott Phillips. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Um, today, as you guys can tell, it's it's a pretty interesting uh, title for the this special uh, podcast episode. Um, we're doing uh, like 11 through 20 um, after the top 10 list of 2019. And this was something that Scott actually suggested. Um, <laughs> my, my Ben Bradley, <laughs> as we've been talking about offline. Um, and I kind of want him to kind of talk to you guys about why we're doing this like instead of talking to you guys about our top 10 list, we're actually talking to you about our 11 through 20. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it, a lot of the reasons that I listen to podcasts, I mean, you know, not only do we do one, but of course we listen to them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm always looking for stuff I haven't heard of or stuff that hasn't been recommended to me. I'm just always looking for, for other opinions and, and people who might suggest a film or a filmmaker to me. I'm like, well, I don't know how that passed me by. I've never even heard of that. And I'll go out and try it, uh, and find something new. And so what I've found is, is that there's a whole lot of uniformity across most critics for one through 10, you know, uh, I mean, not everybody, but I'm saying the same, I would say 15 to 20 films appear in everybody's top 10, just maybe in differing orders. And so I had made the comment to you. I said, you know, where things really get interesting on those lists is 11 through 20, because I think we all kind of recognize when a film is just like a knockout. Yeah. And so usually the, the top 10 is kind of like 10 knockouts uh, in different genres, you know, different, you know, historical periods, whatever the content may be. Uh, but the top 10 is just kind of most people agree these are just amazing films from the, the previous year. And so I think 11 through 20, the picks get a little bit more personal. Uh, they're the picks that like hit me as just being an amazing film. And then when I talk to other people, sometimes they're like, oh, huh, no, I've never even seen that. And usually it's not that obscure, but the other reaction I get was, yeah, I mean, that was good. And so it's interesting. It's those films that some people just absolutely love and some people think are fine. But to you personally, they were in your top 20 of the year. And so I was joking with you and I said, you know, Everybody does a top 10 show and I've listened to a number of them and they're good and they're intelligent critics and I'm not cracking on their opinions, but there's a sameness to it. It's like everybody's, you know, parasite and, you know, uh, the Irishman and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And so it's just, where is it? You know, is it number one? Is it number four? Where is it? But yeah. it's the same movies over and over. Uh, and so I was joking with you and said, you know, we ought to do just one podcast on our top 11 to 20 and nothing else. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it's, it's like, I love that you zeroed in on the 11 through 20 and what it means. Because 
like I, I think that that's where like your fetishes as a film fan come out. Like really, like a lot of your fetishes, the what you, what you seek out for entertainment is in eleven through twenty. And I was I was I was looking at it, and I was like, when I was looking at my eleven through twenty, um, well, first this is something that's going to be interesting for people because typically I only list my top one through five or one one through three and then i just do the rest as alphabetical so people are going to get like an interesting like look into how i ordered things but the even funnier thing is is that people are going to have to figure out what my 10 through 6 are because they can go back into my list and actually double check and say oh okay (laughs) well he already did a top 20 but he just didn't order them i was forced to order them which to tell you the truth, Scott, that was one of the most painful experiences I've had in a while um, because I was, like, trying to figure out and tweak it just, like, for me, what I felt were 11 through 20. Um, but Yeah, because if, if you're like me, there are a whole lot of ones on this list that you're like, oh, it just kind of just missed being in my top 10 because of X. Yes. And so you're almost like, and here is my list of 10 number 11s. And that's exactly <laughs> what it is. That's what I had to like basically just go. I have to make restitution with the fact that everything is a number 11 on this list. Right. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But I think, like, my list really shows the kind of film fan I am and what I gravitate towards and what right. my, like, my tastes are when it comes to entertainment. Like, like when it comes to, like, really, really well-built films, um, this is this is kind of a list that you kind of go, oh, okay, this is, like, you're going to see, and I'm pretty sure that I'm going to see with yours, like, it's a complete Scott list, like, just as much as, like, this is a complete Adam list. And right. to be honest, like, I, th- it's funny because I'm looking at my top, my, my 11 through 20, and I'm like, you know, I could see some really big weirdos making this their top 10 list. Oh, sure. Because. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Because. Absolutely. It's, because some of the things that we quibble with or say, you know, this was a really great movie, maybe except for this. Other people think that that worked. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that, that what your criticism is could be their favorite part of it. Yep. And so it could very easily be a film that's in somebody's top 10. Matter of fact, I know that some of these movies uh, on my uh, 11 through 20, I have heard on some of the top 10 episodes for, for other critics. Absolutely. I like, I, I, I have, I have a couple in there that I'm like, yeah, those would probably be, I, I have a couple that are probably number ones on people's lists. Which is crazy to me, but, uh, and that leads to another conversation is something that we've not talked about, and I'm really interested in, like, your actual, your actual thoughts about it. Um, like, I've talked to Marie about it, and she feels that, like, 2019 was a bit of a letdown for her. Um, oh, wow, really? Yeah, that's what I was saying. And we talked a little bit about it, and I think she's going to talk, like, because I'm doing another episode with her about mm-hmm. the the decade. We're doing cool. our decades. Um, you're welcome to come on if you want, if you've got a decade <laughs> list. <laughs> cool. Um, but what I found was, for me, I was I was a complete opposite. I found that this was like a treasure trove of not like there's not like five films that are perfect and everybody agrees on them. I think there's one film that everybody agrees on. I mean, like all three of us agree that Parasite was the number one film of yep. 2019, yep. but everything yep. else, it was like 
people really, like for me, filmmakers really kind of tried to figure out what they wanted to say and, and kind of stretch their wings. And some yep. swung for the fences and hit it and some missed terribly. But <laughs> for you, how did you, what did you feel about 2019? I, you know, I thought 2019 was an incredible year uh, for film. Matter of fact, I had a terrible time making a top 20, Yeah, uh, much less making a top 10. I mean, I'd look at some movies and be like, oh, my gosh, really? Am I not going to have that movie on my list anywhere? <laughs> and then I would look at the top 20 and think, yeah, but I can't think of one of these that I would bump uh, in, in favor of that one. And so, you know, you could cheat and just have like, you know, my tie for number 20 is – you know, my tie for number 13 is <laughs> just have, you know, 20 films in your 11 through 20. But I try not to do things like that. Uh, and so, yeah, I thought that it was a great year. And the one really encouraging thing to me is, you know, you hear people saying, oh, you know, everything's just a Marvel movie. Everything's a Star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. Everything is part of the 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 Disney, you know, conglomerate and all this kind of stuff. You know, good original ideas and blah, blah, blah are just, you know, falling by the wayside. And, you know, good, smart films for adults aren't being made anymore. Uh, that whole, you know, argument. And I look at my top 20 and there's not one sequel. Yep. There's not one Marvel film. There's not one Star Wars film. There's not one like ongoing IP franchise type film. I've got 20 films that are original standalone conceptions by the people that are involved. I I have one I have one adaptation. No, I have two adaptations. Two adaptations and that's it. Everything yep. else. And, and I mean, and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, the whole point is it's fine if you have, you know, franchise films and what have you on there. I wasn't, you know, avoiding them or saying, oh, I'm not going to pick one of these movies. I'm just saying the top 20 films for the year that just really struck me were, as the best movies that I saw were all, you know, unique uh, creations mm -hmm. by the people involved. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, like, um, like I'll I'll say this up front. Like there are a couple of movies that I know people adore that aren't even in my top twenty. Like Midsommar, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, both films that I I loved, but they just didn't make my top twenty. That's how deep of a that's how deep of a run twenty nineteen did for me. Uh, I mean, right. Under the Silver Lake. I love I love 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 that film, but it didn't make a play like top twenty five. Oh yeah, it's there, but. It just didn't make the list. That's how strong for me. That's how strong of a year it was, because I'm looking back and right. I'm going, how how did I not put something like that or stand off a Sparrow Creek on my top ten, my top twenty? But yeah, then, that's a great movie. Yeah, like, but then, and I think that we're gonna probably do. I think I want to do a uh, I want to do a standalone episode on that movie. By the way, just because it's such a, it's such a. It's such a Scott movie as much as it's such an Adam movie. Like, but they're yeah. it's for different reasons. Um, but it's like that's how deep of a run we did in 2019 was that there are films that I was personally struck by. I mean, like, like you you loved that director's cut. I finally got to see the Midsommar director's cut, and I completely understand why you you said what you said. And if they had just released it at that three hour cut, it probably would have made my top twenty. Because it's right. that strong, but 
Um, you never know. It may have made somebody else's. <laughs> That's great. And with that, guys, uh, we are going to go ahead and get to this. And how we're going to actually do this 11 to 20 is just like everybody else does it. We're going to start with the with number 20 and work our way down to number 11. Uh, so with that, we'll be right back and uh, we'll go ahead and start off with our number 20s. We are go for launch. T-minus... 15, 14, 13, 12, 11. All right, guys, we are back, and we're going to go ahead and start right off with Scott's number 20. Yes, uh, my number 20 is uh, the um, French crime film Les Miserables. Okay, uh, okay, so like I'm going to interject in here, and what we're going to do is because this is a this is something that I think we're going to have some overlap sure. whenever, whenever somebody has an overlap, we'll just say that's on my list where it is. And then we'll both talk about it. So that is actually on my list. It's actually my number 13. So I can, and I can totally understand that. <laughs> it, it, and I think it was like, okay, so I'd like you to talk about Les Miserables, uh, the, this French crime thriller that's, not based off of the Victor Hugo novel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Nobody bursts into song. No, uh, in in this particular version. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it's great. It it reminded me, though. I I find it kind of reductive at times to say, "Oh, this is like X film," mm -hmm. uh, because it's really not. But it it had the feel to me of something like City of God, uh, yes. where you have the the like child gangs mm -hmm. and 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 crime at a kind of a street level is really like crime at a street urchin level yes and uh and there's this great scene at the very beginning of the film where the kids are near the eiffel tower mm -hmm. and and you you see them they're kind of running through this little kind of plaza area and in the background is you know one of the biggest tourist attractions you know in the world uh you know it's like a postcard type shot uh of the uh of the eiffel tower uh as these poor children uh who are involved in all kinds of crime come running by and and it's almost like it's saying you know behind all of your tourism there is a whole world here that you all don't know anything about Absolutely, I could not. I could not agree a hundred percent more. Um, what I loved about about the film is its unrelenting rise in tension. That this day, because it's all set over one one like twenty four hour period, where a they use this uh, like they use the trope of the new cop coming into the squad, kind mm -hmm. of like training day, any other number of of police procedurals that you see but then that's where the i feel like that's where it just stops the comparison because um this film flips it and gives you like you were saying with the the city of god um reference is that it gives you both perspectives and it shows what the police officers are going through as the same time what these children and not only the children, but the people that exploit these children on the streets are dealing with and how there is a pecking order and how that pecking yep. order slowly crumbles. And 
the film is just amazing in the way that it builds and builds and builds. And by the time that it ends in that, like I mentioned, I mentioned it in my, um, and I'm going to do a full review of this for the site because it's not yet out. Um, right. Even though it did like a qualifying run and Amazon actually is the movie is the, the studio that's picked it up. So from yep. what I understand, it's going to be streaming a little bit after it does its like initial theatrical run. Um, but that ending is, I yeah. think, what really smacks me in the face because it's an ending that upsets you as much as it frustrates you. But it's also like, I think that we've talked about this before, Scott. Like, I like endings when they get the fuck out of the, the film right when it needs to. And this one does that. 20 seconds before it should and (laughs) i i love that i like that's the reason why i loved the film is that it led up to this point and it doesn't give you what you think that you want but it gives you what you need yeah you know it's a good way to put it it's you know it's really interesting that it it has this theme throughout it of the idea of like mercy yes and and a general kind of lack of humanity that has crept into society and especially has crept into law enforcement government you know everything from street cops to social workers uh to you name it it's it's kind of like we're just processing meat we're not processing people yep And so there's this moment in the film where like an act of kindness is shown by one of the police officers. Mm -hmm. And then the, the big thematic question is, you know, does that matter? Exactly. You know, is, is that in any way going to turn into something good or is it like, you know, random acts of kindness, mercy, uh, what have you are just kind of, you know, ground up by the machine and spit out and nobody cares. And so that's what really drives the the final half of the film. And so uh, they, they give you an ending that doesn't give you a final answer to some of those questions. Uh, but I think that's the way to do it. It, it absolutely is. Um my fear, and I'm going to leave this at this, uh, my fear with this movie is that it's going to be remade for America, and it's going to be fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, I could see that. I mean, there's a way where this gets remade, and it's it, it says just as much about American police and crime as this does about uh, Paris uh, Paris and where they are right now, but I'm not sure right. it will be. Um, but uh, it's it's a heady and hard-hitting film. Like, uh, I, I do want to warn people that this is not like you're – like, if you have problems with kids being put in danger or kids – like, just kids in general not being the precocious little things that they – that everybody wants them to be. You stay away from this film because you will hate you will hate this film. <laughs> um, and I have to note I have to note two two performances to me that are the standouts, and they're not the lead. Um, Alexis uh, Montanetti as Chris, um, the white cop that mm-hmm. that is the two halves of the yin and yang of yep, this yep. this trifecta. Um, 
he is something else in this film. Like this, the the where he goes and how far he goes is amazing. Um, yeah, he's really good. He's really good. And then uh, Issa Persita, who plays Issa in the film, mm-hmm. the the main kid who, from what I understood, he was literally a um, a random pick. Like he was like like he was non professional actor. This kid breaks your heart. Yeah, he's amazing. He is amazing. Um those two together are kind of the the match and the kindle that make this film the fire blaze that it is. Um right. and they're like if there's a moment in 2019 where I was so anxious, angry and upset at a certain moment it was it was Chris's manipulation of him at the end of everything mm-hmm. like when you think that things are going to be over that that scene the way he manipulates that kid right. is something out of a Dennis Lehane novel yeah and it really like it's the kind of stuff that you read Lehane for but because of the fact that it's it, it's the stuff that we know happens but we don't want to know that it happens and yeah, it's it's heady stuff. It's really heady stuff. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and it could be anywhere in yeah. the eleven through twenty. Really, I mean, yeah. it was just you know the 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 rankings uh, as usual. You're at thirteen. You know, I'm yeah. at twenty, and I can certainly <laughs> see people who'd have it in their top five. No, absolutely, I could. I could even see somebody being bold enough to say that it's their top film. I mean, mm-hmm. like that's absolutely, and that's the kind of stuff that's kind of great. Um, yep. So my number 20 isn't as, as impactful to the world. It's something silly. Uh, it is actually something that we talked about a few weeks ago, which is Michael Bay's Six Underground. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm not, awesome. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this one just because it's like you can you guys can listen to the podcast that we we we, um, we uh, recorded about it. I will just say this much uh, like since. Like, it's been something that I've watched another two times. Like, it's that much fun. Like, that's all it is. It's just, it's straight fun. And sometimes something that's aimed to please, and but aimed to please in a different way than, like, say, the Marvel movies are. Like, this is the big budget filmmaking that I love. I love R-rated, like, you know, adult but juvenile adult uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, stuff. I mean, like, you know, uh, Michael Bay, I'm, I'm... I'm buying everything that Michael Bay is selling with uh, with the exceptions of robots in disguise. If if you took Michael Bay's name off that movie and showed it in a midnight time slot at any of your kind of prestigious film festivals that have a midnight section, Mm -hmm. it would have been the talk of the midnight film section. Oh, absolutely. Everybody would have flipped their crap over that movie. Uh, But it's because... Michael Bay's name is attached to it that it's kind of popular to bash it mm-hmm. uh, or uh, you know downplay it or what have you but if you're looking for just kind of that fun gonzo uber violent just kind of midnight movie craziness uh, it's great absolutely absolutely and again guys please uh, go ahead and um, go ahead and actually uh Re- listen to our episode and also watch the movie. It's on Netflix. I mean, which is, 
I think, like, I, I don't know how I feel about it because I love it because I can rewatch it, but I really want to see this on an IMAX screen. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, it's I like mean, a mixed blessing. You can dial it up anytime that you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how much fun would it have been to see it for the first time in a big giant theater uh, with no expectations for what you were about to see? Absolutely, and it would have been like like I think of like your midnight movie, like like your TIFF midnight movie like analogy mm-hmm. works perfectly for this film. Yep. All right, so your number nineteen. Yes, you mentioned it a minute ago. It's the Midsommar director's cut. Awesome, awesome. And uh, and so my uh, my 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 ruling on this was this did release in theaters. So it's it's not like I'm basing my my number nineteen pick on home video release. Yes. Uh, it uh, I went to see Midsommar the theatrical cut, mm-hmm. and. I really didn't like it all that much. I know we I had, had we had a conversation about that. Like I yeah, really liked I had, it. You didn't. Yeah, I had all kinds of qualms with it and questions about it narratively speaking and not understanding kind of some of the character motivations or at least the degree uh to which they they were motivated and everything like that. Now of course it did have the effect of sticking with me. It stuck in my head. And I kept kind of coming back to it, which is always the sign of a good film. It wasn't just watched and forgotten. Yep. And so then all of the the Twitter uh, and social media noise started up about there's going to be a director's cut. And, uh, and not just a director's cut that added like three or four minutes, a director's cut that adds almost 30 minutes to the film. And I remembered thinking, hmm, you know, I would actually be interested in seeing that to see if I think it works better. And it was one of those weird experiences of almost every qualm that I had with the theatrical cut was addressed in the director's cut. It was yep. it was really weird because, I mean, normally that's just not the case. It's like you're focused on something that if you talk to the filmmaker about it, he'd be like, yeah, I just really didn't think that was that important. And meanwhile, you're fixated on it for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, but in this instance, it, it literally was one of these weird experiences of it lined up. It was like I didn't quite understand, you know, the animosity between a couple of the characters, at least the degree of it. And then there are all these extra scenes of conflict between them. Uh, you know, just each little thing that I was like, yeah, I just don't buy that this character would have gone this far with this. They would fill something in with a good, you know, couple of lengthy scenes between those two characters. And I'd be like, oh, okay, now that makes a whole lot more sense. And so I went from being kind of iffy on it to just being, uh, just thinking it was great. And, uh, and so that's why I'm always specific. I'm like, I kind of give it the, uh, theatrical cuts fine, I guess, but I truly do think this is an instance where the director's cut is, is far superior. I mean, to me, it's pretty clear that the director's cut is the best cut of this film, mm-hmm. but somebody probably came to him and said, look, we don't need this thing to clock in at three hours. And so he just kind of had to shorthand some of the motivations of the characters. He just had to get rid of a few scenes that might be considered kind of extraneous to the overall storyline. But to me, it made sense of 
the things that the characters do later in the film. Because that was what got me with the theatrical cut is I would be like, I don't really know that that person would do that. And (laughs) so when I feel like they're pushing the plot in a specific direction and it doesn't really go with the characters as I've come to know them, uh, that's where I have complaints. And, uh, And I really thought the director's cut resolved all of that. I will I will definitely say this like I think that this is like and it's really strange it's just really strange comparison but I think that horror fans will will understand this is this is Ari Aster's um abyss James mm-hmm. Cameron's abyss it's very similar in in that regard because I loved the original cut of the abyss but I I, I like if you're talking preferences I, I'll never watch that theatrical cut again. I watch the I watch the director's cut. Uh, same thing with Ari Aster's Midsommar, which is is that the theatrical cut is good, but then when you see the director's cut, yeah, that extra thirty five minutes that they added, it, it it rounds it out in the way that when you look back on the theatrical cut, there's no reason to watch that cut anymore because it doesn't make it doesn't make sense to see a film that has. Like you saying, like you're saying, like what would be probably considered, like I, I honestly think it's more plot gap than character development, because mm. with a film that's this much in infused with character and emotion, that right, it, like you're right, it does make like I didn't see it at first because I think that the film is a little overwhelming. Um, it's it's really overwhelming. It's it's. I think that that's something that he does really well. I mean, at least from Midsommar and Heredity, is that it's it's this. It's a lot to take in. So like that first that first dive into it, if you're really into it, it can kind of bleed on the edges so that you don't necessarily think as a critic and it's kind of an emotional response but after you've watched it a second time or you've seen the director's cut you instantly know that it's a a, a fuller experience and so well, you yeah. know and the, the the interesting thing about it also is is I thought that the beginning of that movie was was perfect like mm-hmm. up to the point that they get to their destination yes I thought was the best part of the film Oh yeah. And and the interesting thing is it's unchanged in the director's cut. Yep. All of the extra 30 minutes comes in the the final 2 thirds uh of the film and honestly that's where it needed it. And so that's the other thing that I think makes it work so well is that fantastic opening sequence kind of the the first act of the film is still 100% intact the way it was in the theatrical cut. And then at the point that you, you know, get the uh, upside down camera shot as they're coming into uh, the grounds for where all of this is going to take place, that's kind of the jumping off point for where the director's cut part of it uh, kicks in, not necessarily immediately, but it's in that portion of the film, the back end of it, uh, that, uh, that all the extra footage is. And, you know, sometimes you get these director's cuts that are like an extra five minutes. Yeah. And unless you really, really paid attention at the theatrical cut, you're almost going, now, where was the extra 
stuff in mm-hmm. here and it's like, oh, well, we added 30 seconds to this scene and, you know, we added 15 seconds to this scene and just stuff that you can't tell. And in this, it was like wholesale scenes that had been cut out of the film, you know, some of them as much as, you know, five to eight minutes long. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And that's what really makes a difference. It's not just, you know, lengthening or, you know, tacking on a couple of minutes to lots of different scenes. It's just entire scenes that were cut out. Absolutely. No, no, no. Absolutely. Like, it, it, like long scenes, too. And a lot of them, like, if anybody was, if anybody's a fan of The Good Place and wanted to know why William Jackson Harper signed on to this film, it's because it's in the director's cut. He is probably him and the relationship between um, Jack Houston and Florence Pugh's character are the things mm-hmm. that got the biggest acts in this in yep. in, in the yep. in the theatrical cut um and like we got a slow clap for Florence Pugh i mean she's having she's she had a she had a fucking year man between yep. starting yeah. off with fighting with my family which i feel like again another movie that i saw really late that i was like you know this is a this is this is a solid movie yep. and like it's a wrestling movie yeah but you know what if you like sports coming of age films you're going to love this Mm-hmm. Um, Midsommar, and then of course, like I feel like she she steals the entire the entire uh, like the entirety of Little Women. Like yep. she, she yep. is so I agree. she's so good. And again, yep. she was ha- my she was my vote for uh, breakthrough performer of the year with the Georgia Film Critics Association. And yeah, that that like I'm I'm glad that you nominated her because she's like like that's an like she's had an amazing run and now she's getting she's getting her just dues because now she's I think she's playing Black Widow's sister in the Black Widow movie. So yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. She's getting she she's getting her payment. Like she's getting her her payday, yep. which is good for her. I just hope that she we'll just hope she doesn't get devoured by the machine. Exactly. Well, that's my whole thing is like I I just hope that people like people like filmmakers like Ari Aster and um um why can't I think of Greta Gerwig uh, can mm-hmm. continue to use her in interesting ways. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. My number 19, uh, uh, a whole lot of fun. I think that you like, I think I talked to you about this one, once and I was like, after I saw it, I was like, that is the, that is the awesomest, like perfect 87 minute horror film I've, I've seen in a long time. And that's um, Alexander Aha's return to form in the alligator monster movie crawl <laughs> i love that movie it's that just movie. so much fun it is it's just a lot of fun and they get right what i think a lot of horror movies get wrong that are like these types of movies which is um you have to pile on like it can't be just one issue and like um, I think uh, Drew McQueenie, uh, uh, film critic Drew McQueenie, said something very kind of um, pointed about this movie. He's he said that he thought that James Cameron would love this film, and I think that he would because it's the kind of like smaller, but with a lot of moxie and a lot of understanding of how genre works, like components that make this engine run really well and like i said it just piles on the problems on top of the problems and doesn't like you think that it's going to be one thing but it kind of flips to this other thing which is kind of which is a lot of fun 
Um, yeah, yeah, it, uh, yeah, it's awesome. I, uh, I really enjoy, uh, that film and, and it's so the, um, the alligator effects are so real. Yes. It, it, it just freaked me out. I mean, it's, it, I can't tell if it's a combination of, you know, animatronic, uh, and, and models or what have you, but at times, especially in the close quarters, uh, in the, uh, crawl space area, and everything it it seems so so real so tactile i mean it's almost like you're when i was watching it i was like surely they don't have like some real alligator down there or something <laughs> uh you know yeah. uh, with them uh and so uh it just looks amazing the the effects are just great and that's really when you're dealing with some kind of creature feature animal attacks kind of film or something like that it can really live or die on how believable do you find that animal to be or in this case reptile <laughs> and uh and i just thought that the uh, the effects work in that thing was was incredible it was it really was um and shout out to barry pepper who i feel is like he's like I love I love when a when a hot young actor like ages like twenty years and they get that gruff and they end up like being able to play the roles that they probably wanted to play when they first got on the scene. That's Barry Pepper right now. Like he's getting to play the rough and gruff and it just works for him. Like I think that his relationship with uh Chaos uh I can never pronounce her name, Scoldelurio. Um, as the husband or as the father and and daughter, in a weird way, because of the fact that they they really take it seriously, it really it, it bonds the film in a in a, in a way that you go, ah, they took it seriously. Thank you, thank you for not winking and nudging at a situation. And she really goes for it. Like there's a mo there's a couple of moments where they do this cross cutting between past and present. And she sells it. And I think that that's where, like, Crawl isn't a step up from most creature features is because she, like, they actually mean everything here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I'll recommend a companion piece uh, to that if you can find it. And especially for B-movie podcast listeners, it would be right up their alley, which is a film called The Pool. Yes. Um, and I saw this at Fantastic Fest uh, back in uh, September of last year, September 2019. Uh, it's a film out of Thailand. It was the first movie that this guy had ever made. Uh, low budget, though I will tell you, in my opinion, it doesn't look it. And it takes this idea of being trapped with an alligator uh, in a completely different direction. Uh, so at one point I just checked real quick while you were talking and I didn't find it at one point it was on Amazon prime and I had wondered at first if it was really supposed to be on Amazon, Prime, <laughs> some, some illicit kind of thing had occurred or something because I had never heard anything about a deal with, uh, with Amazon and that movie. Uh, but it's about a, a fellow who works in the film industry uh, and they're filming a, a scene in a big kind of Olympic sized swimming pool, uh, at this kind of resort property that's about to close down, 
uh, for the uh, season. And so uh, as uh, fast as you can say, Adam Green's frozen uh, (laughs) with uh, closing a place down at the end of the tourist season, bad things are about to happen. And so uh, long story short, he's just kind of floating on a little, you know, little raft kind of little thing, little flotation thing uh, in the pool, taking a little bit of a nap. And unbeknownst to him, they've they've set it to drain the pool. Yeah. And so when he wakes up, he's in about two feet of water floating on this raft and has about, I don't know, 15, 20 feet of sheer tile a pool surrounding him and he is trapped in this pool and he's not trapped in there alone. No. And so that is, that is all I will say. Uh, except I will tell you this, my question during the Q and a for the director was, you know, how did you do the alligator effects? And the answer was what effects? <laughs> and I said, come again. And he, you're in there with a real alligator. And yep. I, I said, well, you know, how did you basically, how did you handle that? And he said, I told them don't get too close. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, you actually recommended that film to me um, out of Fantastic Fest. And I did find it on Amazon and I did watch did you, it. I just looked and did not see it there. So I don't know what's going on with with its availability, but that would be an awesome double feature. Yes. Uh, would be uh, crawl and, uh, and the pool. Yes. I completely forgot about that film. And I, I remember you, you really, you told me that story. You told me about how like he was like, he was like, don't get close. And I was like, okay, I got to see this film. And it, <laughs> it adds that to that layer because it's like, it, it's like a lot of films from that area area where they like, what uh, actor actor union bylaws? What? Nah, let's get oh, in. Oh yeah, there. exactly, exactly. <laughs> like there's there's you know no such thing evidently, but uh, but yeah, it's amazing. And he was a great uh, uh, Q and A. Sometimes when you have to have translators, Q and As can get kind of dull. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was so hilarious uh, that uh, yeah, he came kind of uh, on my schedule. It was kind of late in the festival, ah. and so I remember it as being like one of my treasures from the final day uh, that I was at the festival. And so that would be a, a killer double feature is crawl. And then the pool. Oh gosh. Yes. Oh gosh. Yes. Um, so your number 18, my number 18 is the souvenir. Aha. The film that I just, uh, I just queued up. I'm actually going to be watching it. Um, because it's on Amazon prime right now. Um, I'm going to queue it up and I was going to watch it, uh, before the golden globes. Uh, we're recording this on a Sunday before the golden globes, everybody. Uh, but please tell me more about this. Convince me why it's a, why I should be watching this film because it's something that I, I've heard a lot about, but I like to hear from you. The performances are tremendous. Uh, it's also one of those fun, movies uh, where an aspiring filmmaker is one of the characters. Mm-hmm. So okay. that's also, I, I just have this thing about movies, about making movies or movies that are behind the scenes with yes. making movies and stuff like that. Uh, but you know, to tell you the truth, it's a, uh, it's also an interesting look at substance abuse. Uh, you know, so many films, uh, 
kind of focus on the the squalor and the squalid aspect of things and people, you know, lying in gutters with needles hanging out of their arms or something like that. It's just so over the top in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, some of that obviously is, is real and some people unfortunately do live like that. But there's a whole segment of the population that has substance abuse problems that it's more subtle than that. You know, they still go to jobs and, you know, they still try to have lives and everything like that. But it's just kind of this insidious thing that messes up their relationships and messes up their lives. And so that is the approach that the souvenir takes to the subject is the person is kind of like a functioning heroin abuser. That's okay. the destructive nature of the relationship. I mean, it becomes this kind of thing of, you know, I love this person, but I can't stay with this person. I love this person, but I can't live with this. And, uh, and then really just, you know, the, the complications that ensue. Okay. Absolutely. Um, uh, that actually, um, that really kind of uh, solidifies that I am definitely going to be watching this. Um, and and more interesting, uh, more interesting even to that is the fact that um, they're actually um, Joanna Hogg, the writer director of the Souvenir, has actually um, already signed along with all the rest of the cast uh, for another um, a sequel to the movie called The Souvenir Part Two. Really? I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was just something um, I had been reading. Uh, I had been reading um, as we were talking. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's on Amazon Prime, guys. So it yeah. doesn't cost Tom, you. Oh, go ahead. Tom Burke yes. who plays the lead uh, who has the substance abuse problem. Uh, he's one of the performances of the year. I just thought that he was incredible. Ah, um. I cannot remember where I know him from, but I definitely know him. Like I've seen him in so many things. It's just wait, when you get it down, when you get down to it, it's like, uh, I can't remember recently. Um, I'm guessing it's only God forgives. You know what? Yes. That's what it was. He plays the brother. Yep. Yep. Um, and then he's actually, um, he's got one of the bigger roles in, uh, Fincher's new movie, Mank. Um, he's playing Orson Welles of all things. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could see him in that part. Yep, you can. Might have to pad him up a little bit. Pat, like just but, a little bit, but, like because of I the can, fact I that it takes place him. during Citizen Kane. So, yeah, no, well, absolutely. that's true. That's true. A little, a little less during that era. Yep, but uh, uh, good, good. I'm glad. And like I said, guys, uh, Amazon Prime, it's on there. Uh, I already added it. Like, God bless uh, A24 for their their quick turnaround and their deal with Amazon Prime. You get to see these films. Um, my um, uh, so like uh, my number. Uh, so my number 18 is the Quentin Dupuis film Deerskin. Uh, huh. <laughs> so I think that Quentin Dupuis like. I, I love him as much as I hate him, but this one I definitely loved. Uh, it stars Jean Dujardin um, as a man in his 50s who has a midlife crisis and is in the process of leaving his wife when we catch him and he ends up buying this deerskin da- jacket that has tassels and um, completely changes his life. He ends up turning 
like I'm not going to ruin a lot, but through that he ends up turning out to be a film, a serial killing filmmaker. Um, <laughs> if you've ever now seen... I'm wishing I hadn't missed this it's fantastic <laughs> fest. I haven't seen it, um, uh, and it played uh, uh, in a late night slot opposite something else. I want to think. I want to say it was synchronic. Ah, and uh, and so I, I I missed it as a result. Um. It's, 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 it's literally 77 minutes long and it is as weird as you possibly think that it is because, um, there's all like, it's alternately also about the deerskin jacket itself wanting to be the only jacket in existence and how, uh, the Jean Desjardins character goes about helping out the deerskin jacket fulfill its dreams as also... Is, is this like in fabric for cool dudes? Um, sort of, <laughs> but but Quentin Dupree, it's like he's taking the piss on everything but his film. So, gotcha. it, it, so it is and it isn't like in fabric, I feel like is like the Cronenberg take on this. And the Quentin Dupree is like the almost Sam Raimi take, like not the kinetic okay. energy, but the way that it mixes humor and horror is really interesting. Like it, it's if you've ever seen a Quentin Dupree film, uh, Rubber is his like most famous, which is about a killer rubber tire, a tire. Um, but it's something that has to be seen. It's so original. Like I, I think back on it and I know I like when I said it's serial killing filmmaker, but the film makes me smile. Um, <laughs> right. It's also, well, you know, it's, it, oh, it's funny that you, that you uh, said that about it being original and creative, because that was one of the things that you and I had discussed uh, when I brought the idea up of an 11 through 20. Yes. As we had both said, that's kind of where some of the most original, creative, kind of more off-the-wall uh, films of the year tend to live. No, it absolutely does. Um, and uh, people will, like, um, if people, after they see um, Portrait on a, of a Lady on Fire, which is a, an amazing film. When they see it, if they want to see the one of the lead actresses in more stuff, um, Adele Haniel, she's actually the co-lead in this in an entirely different film, but still manages to be just as great in this as she is in A Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And to be quite honest, I think that she, that's the reason why I think that people are really talking her up is just her range to be able to be in both of these types of films and be just as good as, as she is in both. Right. Um, it has not been released in the U S just as of yet, as I, uh, as I understand it. But if people like us on the B movie podcast, um, have a fetish for buying Blu-rays, um, Australia's umbrella, um, entertainment who do some really great work on Blu-rays. Um, they just released it about two months ago. So if uh, people were really, really wanting to see this, which I highly recommend that they do see this film, um, go ahead and take a look and check it out. Cool. Absolutely. So Scott, number 17. Number 17 for me is Ad Astra. <laughs> um, 
So this is not on my list, but it almost made my list again. Um, we like we have like one of the things that bonds us is James Gray and his yes. films. Uh, yeah. We have a we have a strong affinity for them. We like a long, long, long time ago um, on the film dispenser. We had a podcast. May it rest in peace. Deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> and we covered we covered um, The Immigrant. Which is yes. which is an amazingly beautiful film, and um, our love. Like I don't think that anybody can find that. I don't even know if I have the original recordings of uh, of that podcast. <laughs> but um, tell me a little about James Gray's science fiction epic. You know, it's just uh, the reason that it's not in in my top ten is I'm not a fan of the ending. Yes. Uh, I thought the ending was kind of a, a cop out. I kind of thought that it, it all built up to kind of just fizzle. Mm-hmm. And so for some people that kills the whole thing. So, I mean, there, there are probably people out there who are, who hear this at number, uh, 17 and are thinking, Oh my gosh, how in the world is this on your list at all? That film's awful, blah, blah, blah. And then when you talk to them, you find out that basically their opinion of it all boils down to the ending. Yeah. And and so they're just like, oh, God, that ending was just so awful. It was just so dumb, uh, you know, kind of dismissively like that. And it's like, well, you know, the problem is, is it's like 95 percent brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then five percent going, really, this is what we've been building up to the whole time. And so that's what kept it out of my top 10. But the good parts of it, you know, like I said, 95 percent of its runtime is so good. Uh, that I couldn't keep it out of my top 20. And uh, and some people will disagree and think that the end works, you know, just fine and they'd put it in their, you know, top 5. And uh and that's fine with me. I just mm-hmm. felt like the the ending and I won't discuss it in any detail because I want people to get to see it and experience it for themselves. But the ending was just kind of hmm, you know, just kind of so we've been building up such deep kind of thematic uh, kind of content in this thing and, you know, a, a kind of a serious conflict between these two characters and just all of this kind of emotional baggage. And then it's kind of like it just shows up at the end and is just kind of dismissed in a line or two. And uh, and so I, I thought that that was it's it's failing, but the rest of it was so good. And just the the production design. And if you're into science fiction and and you know speculating about the future and everything it's just so believable it's it's like it just extrapolates the future in a fashion that you go yeah i could i could very much see you know in x year that this is what things would be like and so uh, it was a, a science fiction that had such a kind of lived in quality to it that you believed it and so i yeah. thought it was incredibly well done um I'm going to I'm just going to speak a little bit uh, about this because I think I, I, I mean, my review speaks for itself. And it's something I, I wanted to ask you about um, about one thing, which is, is that so there are a lot of people out there. There's a lot of filmmakers out there that attempt to m- attempt to make something that echoes in the same chamber that Blade Runner does. And that opening text font if you're a blade runner fan you know exactly what uh, uh, what james gray is trying to do <laughs> right um i feel like of all the science fiction films that i've seen that have tried to echo it's echoing but in 
a different, like, but a different, but a complementary sonic, like, echo. And it's really interesting because the same, like, the same kind of challenges that Blade Runner faces, that faced in 1982, I think Ad Astra really does um, mirror and mimic because of the the film it is and like even including brad pitt with the narration and Mm -hmm. a star who's still at his apex like ford was at his apex during and was in it like he just had turned 40 when he had made blade runner and he was at the apex of his power pitt is still at the apex of his power but they're at different points like i feel like ford was ascending and had almost reached his top where pitt is at that point where it's not any day, but we know that it's like the Redford thing where there's going to be a downturn and it's going to be slow. But when when it when it happens, we're going to go, oh, shit, what pit got old fast. <laughs> um, but it, it's interesting because I, 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 I want like this was something that I wanted to ask you before, but I never got to like, like, do you feel that or is that something that I'm just making up in my head? No, I mean, I think, of course, we've been saying that about Tom Cruise for a while and yeah. look at him. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, the, uh, you're used to him with the, the physicality of his roles and, and always playing somebody who's, you know, kind of youthful. Mm-hmm. And so now we're getting into the part where, you know, tree of life, you know, he's playing the dad role. Yep. Uh, and, and then in, in this movie, the kind of, you know, aging astronaut. Uh, and so, yeah, I agree with you that, you know, I think that his career can certainly keep rolling, but it's going to have to, by definition, be different. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like it's going to get more interesting. Like there's something about the Cliff Booth this year, like his Mm -hmm. performance is Cliff Mm -hmm. Booth, Mm -hmm. um, that was more interesting, like he keeps on doing less and less, but he gets more and more interesting. Um, and it, and I think some of it is because that character is how you think of him. This is true. You know, I, yeah. I, I mean, I think that, you know, it may not be the way he views himself, but I think that we kind of bring some of that character with us into the theater because we see him as the aging you know, action star or what have you, though he wasn't really kind of the action prototype that your, you know, Bruce Willis and Tom Cruise and all of those guys were in their day. Uh, but you know, we see him as the guy who is, you know, the actor, uh, as his career may be beginning to fade. And then the fact that he's playing somebody in that situation, there's enough of a little meta overlap there, uh, that he may not have to do as much, uh, on screen for us to see that in him. You're, I, I think you just put the nail in the coffin, so to speak. <laughs> um, Ad Astra is out right now on um, any of the streaming platforms. Uh, I would strongly, strongly, strongly suggest if you liked it or if you want to give it its best chance to buy the 4K UHD disc, I have it. It is like... One thing that cannot be said about this film is that it is anything less than visually stunning. Like I watched it on yeah, my, absolutely, my, yeah, I watched it on my 4K unit, uh, my 4K monitor, and it's hallucinatory. Like the way how good the image, the image is. So just a little, 
you know, hey, go ahead and do this physical media. But I mean, streaming, they have the 4K on it, too. And I would say that that is the way to watch that movie. So my number 17 um, is another movie that should be watched in the highest possible quality. Um, it is Zhang Yamu's Shadow. Um, ah, nice. Yeah. Um, part Wusa film, part political intrigue, kind of what he does, um, what Yamu does now. He specializes in these films, but this one is, I feel like, is extra special. And part of the reason why it's extra special is the visual look of the film. He has managed to make a color film in black and white. And, but it's not in the way that most people do it. It's literally, you can tell it was done through set design, costuming, um, makeup and effects work, but not color grading. Because when you watch this film, I'm going to strongly suggest you, if you can, find it in 4K. I know that Apple has the 4K um, Adobe Vision version of it. If you have the ability to watch it in that, watch it in that. Because the one thing I feel like UHD does really well is it brings out the flaws in an image. And if you are like tampering with the color imagery in any way, shape or form, UHD is going to bring that out. And it's going to show you very clearly that somebody tampered with the image quality. You could just tell, um, here you can very much so tell it's from everything. It's just hard work. And it tells this really clever political tale. Um, that's a spin on the Prince and the Popper. I'm not going to give out much more than that. It is lighter on the action and more heavy on the political intrigue and drama. But if you're into that, it is it is just a striking, strikingly good film. Cool. That is one that has eluded me. You know, each year you kind of have some of these films that like you have multiple chances to see it at a festival. Yep. And it conflicts with other stuff that you're there to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and just for whatever reason, it just doesn't happen. And then there's yep. just so many releases coming at you fast and furious at the end of the year uh, that uh, you, you'd have some that slip through. So that is one I definitely need to check out. No, absolutely. I um, I don't think that you're going to be disappointed in this one. Um, and uh, coincidentally, um, uh, Yamu as a director won what's the equivalent of the Oscar in um, in Hong Kong for this film uh, as best director. And so did his art direction, makeup and costume and visual effects uh, designers. They all all four of them won um, the equivalent of the uh, Hong Kong Oscar. So it, oh, it's nice. yeah, it's legit. Like it, it's it's extremely well made. And like it just struck me. It was like. I watched it in the middle of summer and it actually cooled me off because of how, how visually cold it is. And just, uh, it's, it's something, it's definitely something. Um, so with that, let's get to your number 16, Scott. Yeah. It's actually one that you mentioned earlier, uh, in our introduction, which is under the silver lake. Ah, I'm glad that you, uh, that you picked this one. I really am. So why don't you actually talk about this uh, 
the, what I'm sure is going to be a cult, a, a cult, perfect detective, no, uh, detective movie. Yeah, exactly. If you were going to ask me to talk about what this is about, I'd go, I don't know that I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, it, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just this kind of head trip of a, of a detective story. It's kind of like, you know, if, if the long goodbye were crossed with, you know, Jeff Spicoli from, uh, fast times at Ridgemont high, you know, you've got <laughs> some, some, uh, uh, unreliable narrator to say the least, this guy that's, uh, played by, uh, Andrew Garfield and what I think is a great performance this past year. Uh, where he's just kind of this pot smoking, drug using, unemployed, womanizing kind of guy, uh, who you know even is is lying to his own mother about going to you know job interviews and things like that. Uh, you know we can see what his life is like, and then there are these hilarious telephone conversations that he has with his mom. You know just checking in, and everything that he tells her is basically not true. It's like he hasn't been doing any of the stuff that he tells her that he's been doing, uh, and he uh, becomes interested in this uh, woman who is uh, staying at the apartment complex uh, where he is, and uh, they spend like a day together getting to know each other and everything. And then all of a sudden she's just gone. And so he finds it unusual, abnormal, whatever that, uh, they would have had this encounter and she would just leave without a word. And so he becomes convinced that something nefarious is going on. And so it's funny because you know, when he checks into it, uh, and, and wants to report her as a missing person and everything, even they are like, well, you know, dude, maybe she just figured out that you're the big giant loser that you are and just left. (laughs) (laughs) And and so it's like, you know, the movie is under no misapprehension as to who this guy is. Uh, and, but he is convinced that this just doesn't make sense and that something, uh, you know, nefarious is at work here. And so he kind of starts leading his own, uh, you know, half-assed private investigator investigation, uh, into her. And then it becomes this, you know, crazy, you know, I don't know, almost Mulholland Drive-esque kind of thing of him just going from one kind of surreal situation to another. And so there are times that you can't figure out, are these the workings of his drug-addled brain, or are these really weird things that are actually taking place? And so uh, it's just really kind of a a head trip of a movie, but it's really, really well done and well-performed. And it's the follow-up film uh, to It Follows. The uh, the director of uh, of Under the Silver Lake is the same fella uh, who made uh, the horror film It Follows. And this this feels like, you know, he had this hugely unexpected hit with this movie. And so they kind of let him write his own ticket with this one. And you get the feeling with how troubled the release of this film was and how it didn't make any money and things like that, uh, that uh, it's, uh, you know, probably a situation where he's not going to get handed that blank check again. <laughs> Absolutely not. But man, what a swing. 
I mean, yeah. like, that's yeah. the thing is that it's a swing. Uh, David Robert Mitchell. Thank like, you. I, I totally blanked on his name. <laughs> I was sitting there. I was about to say David Foster Wallace. And I was like, no, I know that's not right. So uh, thank you. But you know what? The whole thing is, is that that this feels like David Foster Wallace. In I was going to say, that's actually a pretty good, <laughs> uh, a, a pretty good uh, analogy. The, the, the odd, you know, just the strangeness of these little subplots that come up that are, that they're like, they're going to be so important. And then they just kind of fade away and, and aren't important. And it's very much kind of, th- this is one of these movies of, if you have to have kind of nice, neat, well-placed narrative plot beats, this is not the film for you. Yep. If, if the destination is more important than the journey, this is probably not the film for you. If you were looking for this to be like a traditional mystery, you know, kind of like a neo-noir, you know, gumshoe kind of thing with this, um, you know, uh, druggy surfer kid kind of subbing in as the detective, but ultimately you're going to get an answer to everything, you'll be disappointed. So it's kind of like, this is one that you just kind of have to ride the wave that these characters are on and just enjoy what you're seeing. You're absolutely right. And the reason why this was not on my, uh, 2019 list is because I saw it in 2018, because again, I was a bit of a naughty boy and got a, um, got a French Blu-ray of this because it was released in, I think it was like in, August of 2018 in um, in France and yeah. uh, and then had a Blu-ray release um, like in October. So um, yeah, it was I, a strange. It, it played Fantastic Fest 2018. Yeah, and uh, and I missed it because uh, I didn't get to stay for the entire festival, and it played on the day I came home. Uh, and so I remember thinking, oh, man, that stinks. I was so looking forward to seeing that movie. And, of course, I mean, you know, they're they're going to balance their schedule and have some great stuff that plays at the end, just yep. like great stuff playing at the beginning. And so it just happened to be luck of the draw uh, that I missed it. And so, yeah, I had a really weird release of, like, it was going to come out in theaters, then it didn't really come out in theaters, and then they wound up dropping it on uh, on uh, streaming platforms and everything. And so I decided to, to, to give it the benefit of my dollars and, and bought the digital release. Mm-hmm. And after seeing it the first time, I'm glad I did because it takes multiple viewings to... <laughs> <laughs> to, to really understand yeah to yeah, understand the fractured nature seen. of it, everything yeah exactly. <laughs> um but uh, but just you know it, it's like you know you and i you know and it's kind of my constant refrain with this it said that uh you know so often top 10 lists or top 20 lists really become like the top 10 top 20 most creative things that you saw exactly you know you and i just see so many movies and 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 everything that there's so much of it that even if it's well done just kind of feels like a retread like you know hey that was you know good but of course i've seen that done that well dozens of times so it doesn't really stand out and so this was just one of those movies that just stood out as kind of like a singular experience from 2019. It really did. It really is. Um, and it's on, it's streaming on Amazon prime again. Thank you. A 24. Uh, so you guys can start really, really, really kind of deep diving into this one. It It is uh, two hours and 20 minutes just to let you guys know it is, it is not a short film. Um, but I think for those that 
it's gonna vibe for it's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be a hard love there like um this is this is like what this is what a cult film is like to me this is like the very definition of a cult film <laughs> yeah um it has a lot of moments that you're just like what you know but yep. uh, but if you can just go with it uh i think it's really enjoyable and i mean and the main thing is it knows that it's absurd Oh yeah. So absolutely. you know, you, you you just can't take it kind of too seriously. And and I don't know I don't know if it's a, a a good comparison, but a type of comparison would be something like inherent vice. Yeah, I was gonna say like you can do a double feature of this in inherent vice and you'd pretty you'd be pretty solid um and confused. Solidly yes. confused. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I will say that it has it has like if I um, if I did a a, a a comedic like comedic moments of unexpected comedic moments of the 2010s, this would probably be my top because there is a moment that is so wrong, but it is hilarious to me involving. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> involving uh, Sam's yes. Prius, you just don't want to yes. screw with his Prius. Yes. Yes, involving uh, uh, kind of uh, defacing his his property. Yes. And yeah, I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that in my life in a film, and I just absolutely died when that scene happened. <laughs> um, there, uh, like, yeah, I'm not going to say any more because it would ruin it. Yeah. And I, I was thinking that maybe we could, you know, you could come up with like a subgenre of that, you know. Oh, uh, gosh. How many? How many films <laughs> have ever done that like for that? comedic yeah. effect? Oh, yeah. wow. Exactly. <laughs> it would be great. Um, so my number 16 is a film I feel like is, oh, well, we're just going to get into it because I don't feel it is uh, like I like it's true dangerous filmmaking. Uh, Dragged Across Concrete. Oh, man, that's a great movie. S. Craig Zoller's uh, third film. Um, clocking in in almost three hours. It's a crime film um, that's a meal in the in the way a novel is a meal. Um, it, it's the plot basically breaks down as as this. It's it's a it's a it's a parallel plot film between criminals and police officers and how at the end of the day how intertwined and in how the line is so blurred between these between corrupt cops and criminals trying to stay on the narrow but unable to do so and getting into situations that that have real consequence and um man like talk about a film that uses uh that uses actors imagery to as not just shorthand but in a very dangerous way that we're not used to seeing anymore um and i just like it didn't make my top 10 because of a couple of issues one the main the main issue was the was it's it's really hard to recommend a 2 hour and 40 minute film um, starring somebody who is, I don't know, like, like is politically in, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he became problematic, he, we would say. Yeah. Even before problematic was a, was a word. And, um, 
Yeah, it, it, but it is like like any of Craig Zoller or like the the two films before. It is an amazing, slow paced, brilliant dissection of a genre. Like in the way that that Tarantino can do slow, methodical dissections of genre that he that he used to do, you know, with his first films. Zoller does in a, I think, in a really big way. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, he's he's quickly just kind of become a master of 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 genre film. Uh, you know, Bone Tomahawk is amazing. Uh, uh, what is it? Is it not Assault? I'm, I'm, I know. Uh, Brawl and Brawl, Sobok. Brawl and, Brawl and Sobok. I was like, Assault on Precinct? <laughs> Whatever. I can. I was confused there for a minute. But yeah, his uh, uh, his films have been amazing. I've been sitting around wondering, so does he do science fiction next? You know, it's I, like we've had the Western sure. with kind of a horror element to it. We've had the, you know, the the cop movie. We've had the prison movie. So I was like, you know, what's the next genre that he's going to hit? If somebody told me that he was making some kind of space opera or something, I would believe it. No, absolutely. I would believe it, too. Um, And, and again, it's a great film. Um, This one is also on Amazon streaming. Uh, you can watch it if you want to. Um, I know that a lot of people are probably not going to, but that's okay. Uh, I mean, like I had to put it out there because it's a great film and I, I, it didn't make my top 10 for, for certain reasons, but I mean, it's still, like you said, it's a number 11 in a group of 10. So, right. you know, what was your number 15? My number 15, you go from one tough watch for you Mm -hmm. with dragged across concrete to my toughest watch of the year, which was The Nightingale. Oh. Oh. And, yeah, and uh, I think this movie is just amazing. It's it's the new film from Jennifer Kent, who made uh, The Babadook. Babadook, yeah. And, uh, and so this film is set in Tasmania in the 1800s uh, during uh, their occupation by the, the British... Uh, and kind of the the civil war and 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 things that existed between the 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 British uh, occupiers uh, and the indigenous people, and then you've also got uh, the you know uh, Australia in that area was used for housing British convicts, and so you've got this community of of you know British uh, convicts that have, have have been released from prison. Uh, and so you've got all these different groups together and, uh, the, the racial and and ethnic and whatnot, hatreds and prejudices that exist between them. And so it is ultimately, uh, about a, uh, a woman, uh, who had, had been one of the, the prisoners had been in trouble, uh, ultimately becoming allies with one of the aboriginal, uh, folks and, uh, and kind of this, adventure of sorts that they go on it's it's a revenge film i won't say revenge for what uh but uh, there's some you know wartime atrocities committed uh toward the beginning of the movie and uh she and uh, and this other uh, indigenous uh character uh wind up kind of teaming up he becomes like her her tracker and guide uh, as she is going to find the the british troops that did what they did and i'll i'll leave that as as vague as possible but it's it's a harrowing film it doesn't hold back 
uh, on any of the, the violent moments or, you know, sex crimes or, you know, I mean, literally when you use the expression raping and pillaging, uh, that would be 100% accurate to, uh, what all is going on in this film. Yeah. Um, I have seen, like we, we talked about me watching this film and the first thing I was like, that like the the moment that we both talked about we i know the moment you're talking like there are very many moments but there is a one specific moment that that is a gasper noesque moment that you're just like wow um this film took close to a year and a half to find american distribution uh, finally i have see um uh, picked it up and released it and it's I don't think it like it's a tough watch, but I also don't feel it's exploited in any way, exploitative in any way. I think that it's like I think Kent is a very brave filmmaker to make this two like close to two and a half hour film or like two hour and 15 minute film about what like what it means, what what colonialism means and what occupation means and in this day and age right now what we're dealing with um it's a very 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 sharp and critical look at what that what that means and yeah you're right yeah and it's and it's you know great i mean in the sense of you know a strong female protagonist a strong character with a uh you know person of color with Mm -hmm. the uh the aboriginal uh, a guide that is leading her. And so it becomes in a way a friendship movie between them. You know, yes. it's almost like a pecking order. It's like you have the British occupiers and it's like, we're the top tier. And then the way she envisions it, you know, she's the, the next tier. And then the people of color are the bottom tier. And so then of course you have the people of color who are thinking, this is our place, you know, that's very American Indian native American esque in the sense that they're like, y'all are the ones invading our land. We were the first people here, you know, y'all are the intruders. This is our place. And so if you ask them, they would say that, you know, they were the top of the pecking order. Uh, and then, you know, the, probably the, the poor convict folks who didn't have any choice in getting there. And then the British occupiers would be considered the bottom of it. Mm. And so you have this very kind of multi tiered, uh, you know, social caste system almost that, that the movie is exploring, uh, and uh, along with being, uh, somewhat of a, a revenge thriller. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I hope that Kent continues on this path that she's on because um with the Babadook it's 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 similarly like it's it's a spiritual cousin to this film in in that it really does deal with a subject matter in a in a delivery like in a delivery system that you would not expect um but works like this this film works amazingly well like i think i think that that's why it shook me so much is that yeah, yeah. It, she's one of the most interesting people working right now i think oh absolutely with this and the baba duke and let's just hope it doesn't take her another 5 years to get financing to do something else <laughs> that would exactly. just that would be a crime um 
speaking about where, like my number 15, going from one female fam- filmmaker to another that's had trouble trying to get films made, but hopefully this release will help her greatly in her career, which is uh, Lafayne's, uh, or Lorraine Scafaria's Hustlers. This is my number 15. Ah, nice. Um, which, um, it's just... It, it's just a great film. Like you think it's, you think it's about one thing, but it's not, it's not like it, like, you know, I know that at face value, the plot line is, um, strippers find a way to con, um, wall street, wall street brokers out of money. But the film isn't about like, I mean, the film is at face value about that, but it is so much more than that. Like any good crime film, it's more about, it's more about something else. And, uh, like it's, I think a lot of it is about the way that not only women treat each other, but how how women treat men as a reaction to their social status. And it's it, it, like I know it's saying a lot, but you know what? At the bottom line, it is a it is a fun fucking film to watch. It's a fun fucking film to watch. It's a it's it's an entertaining film, but then it has a little bit more on its mind and like Jennifer Lopez hasn't owned the screen like this since, like, for me at least, 20 years ago when she jumped into that trunk with George Clooney in Out of Sight. Or she brandished that shotgun in Out of Sight. Like, that's how good she is. Yeah, yeah, she is. She was at the, uh, I had uh, Florence Pugh from Little Women. Uh, and then Jennifer Lopez from Hustlers at the top of my best supporting actress uh, roster for my various critics groups. Great. That's that's and there's reason. I mean, like realistically, like she she like I know that it's Constance Wu's character that is kind of the lead, but I feel like Jennifer Lopez just her energy and her like her energy and just her star power is like a black hole. It sucks everything into it and it just becomes more about her. I don't even know if it was intended to be this, but it's more about her than it is about, about Constance Wu's character, even though everything yeah. tells you in the film, it's about constant Wu, Constance Wu. Yeah. She's almost like the audience surrogate, like yeah. the, the in into this world. Absolutely. Like, like, like to make a comparison for me, for everybody, if they need a, like, if they need a comparable, it's like, she is the Ray Liotta character in Goodfellas, but Jennifer Lopez is both Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci. Yeah, no, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it, uh, it was my one of my most pleasant surprises of 2019. It's yes. a movie that I went into thinking, mm, I don't know this. Uh, it's just uh, kind of generic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, just the premise. It was just kind of like, mm, I don't really know what I'm going to think of this. And I was just blown away. I mean, I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, very stylishly shot, you know, well edited and everything. The performances were great. Um, I mean, I, I thought that it was one of the, the, the bigger surprises of 2019. Absolutely. And um, Lorraine Scafaria, not only just a writer-director um, and a playwright, but she's also an actress. And um, if I could make a recommendation for you guys, if if you like her work and you want to see her 
uh, you want to see her in, in an acting role, it's something that Scott loves, uh, a film that Scott loves, Coherence. She's actually in Coherence. Oh, wow. Okay. She plays the yeah. character Lee. So she's Interesting. not, yeah, she's not the, of course, she's not one of the mains, but she's, um, oh God, who is her? I think, um, she plays the girlfriend or wife of Nicholas Brendan's character in the film. Okay. So, but she's like, she's a supreme talent. I feel like that I hope, uh, I hope she gets more work. Um, she gets more work out of this. Like I was saying, like. Her film The Meddler is a great film. Um and uh and then of course uh she did a movie called Seeking the Friend at the End of the World. So uh just all to say, Hustlers you can get on streaming services or um like any streaming service or buy it on physical media. It's not available on Netflix or any uh or Hulu or anything like that right now. So Scott, what is your number fourteen? Number fourteen for me is Riley Stern's The Art of Self Defense. Oh man, this is a this is this is one that you had told me about, and it's not that I I I sat on it. It's just like I didn't get to the theater in time to see it, so I saw it um, on home video. And man, what a dark, funny comedy! <laughs> exactly, it's like uh, I guess you know that you're like you know warped or something when this is the comedy on your list. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and there are other, you know, deserving comedies out there, uh, as well. Uh, but yeah, this was just so pitch perfect. I mean, satire is kind of hard to do. Uh, you know, a lot of people were giving Jojo rabbit a bunch of grief, uh, for being kind of limp wristed with its satire, not being firm enough and, and not hitting it hard enough and, and, and kind of pulling back and, and pulling its punches, uh, but then by the same token, you know, you can have stuff that's just too on the nose <laughs> yes. and and just hits the point too hard. And so there is something about this film, just the total commitment of everybody. I mean, the performers, it's just like everybody's on the same page. Everybody's got kind of the same tone uh, to their characters. And it's one of these things of we've got to play it straight to make the comedy work. It's only absurd because the characters are buying into what they're saying and doing. If it, if it was wink, wink, nudge, nudge, break the fourth wall, smile at the camera, that kind of thing, this movie would never work. No, it wouldn't. It absolutely wouldn't. And it really is like, even though that there are other people in the film, it really is Jesse Eisenberg and Alessandro uh, Nivola's like movie. It's a twofer basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, and man, like every time I think that Jesse Eisenberg is done with, I'm like, ah, uh, he's like he's so like and like ineffable or whatever. He comes along and he does something like this that makes you realize he is like one of the most underrated actors out there. Like just just straight out just on the most underrated because of just how versatile he is. Um, like what he can do. There's no, I don't know if there's a limit to what he can or cannot do. You know, it's, it's funny that you would say that, uh, the other night, uh, we were watching the, uh, the live, 
uh, remakes of the Norman Lear comedies. Yes. Yeah. You know, they did it once before where they did like an episode of All in the Family Mm -hmm. paired with an episode of the Jeffersons. Yeah. And then this time they did uh, an episode of All in the Family with an episode of Good Times. Yes. And so Jesse Eisenberg was on the All in the Family episode. Mm Mm-hmm. And he, it's the famous episode. It was really famous, you know, when I was a kid and I mean, I was little when it aired, but I'm Mm -hmm. saying just in reruns and everything like that about the conscientious objectors in Vietnam. Yes. And so this fella has kind of snuck down from Canada uh, to see his family at the holidays and winds up sitting at the dinner table uh, with Archie and one of Archie's friends who had a, a son who was killed in Vietnam. And so you basically have this kind of like draft dodger kind of person is how they view it, uh, sitting there having a meal with somebody who, you know, kid paid the the ultimate price. And Jesse Eisenberg was just so good in that episode. I mean, here it is, you know, live, it's television, it's totally different uh, than what he normally does, though I think he does do plenty of stage work, so he's probably used to it. And even at the end of it, my wife was like, oh, my gosh, Jesse Eisenberg was so good in that part. And so I felt very much like what you just said. You know, is there just like nothing this guy can't do? I think that he's he's proven over the last and I cannot believe I'm going to be saying this, but the last 15 years of his career, he he proves that there's nothing he can't do. Um, And I I honestly feel like it's it's probably more to his tastes that he's not gone as commercial. I mean, the one commercial thing he did was playing Lex Luthor, and we all know how that turned out. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think that he did it because he knew the kind of shit show was going to be, and he did it and was like, okay, I'll appease my agents, I'll get a nice payday, and I can go back to things like the art of self defense. Now. One thing I did have to ask a question uh, you about to th- to see what you thought or maybe you knew. Um, so this is directed and written by Riley Stearns. Um, Riley Stearns went through a really public breakup, and I didn't. I knew I found out about that at the same time I was watching it, and it feels like somebody working some really heavy duty stuff out, but doing it in a way that. It's it seems undercover at first, but then when you realize his divorce was like a very public thing and it's all about uh, like, you know, he like, you know, his wife left him for a major star and I'm not going to talk about it there because it's just not it's just gossip. But it does inform on this thing feels so personal, like like about masculinity and what he has mm-hmm. to say about it. And I was wondering, have you found any research or in interviews? Cause I know that you're a guy, you're a big guy that loves to like, like read interviews with filmmakers after you've seen something and especially something that piques your interest. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I was aware of that backstory, but I haven't seen anything where he directly commented on it. Ah. Uh, however, you know, it is interesting kind of what kind of fodder people's divorces have been uh, for movies in 2019. You know, I mean, you've got, yep. you know, Bombach's, uh divorce uh, was really the source material for Marriage Story. Yes. Uh, and then you've got this movie that was heavily influenced uh, by that. Uh, I do know from interviews with Riley Stearns that he's heavily into martial arts. Mm-hmm. And that he had a kind of almost like a similar experience to the Jesse Eisenberg character, not necessarily 
that he was mugged and then went and decided to get involved in martial arts, but just that he kind of found, you know, a new self in the martial arts that it was, you know, like he took it kind of to like the meditative kind of level, mm-hmm. uh, as like a, a lifestyle and everything. And he, he says that, you know, if he doesn't get to a martial arts class, uh, you know, a couple times a week that he just kind of feels all out, out of sorts. And so I do know that that part of it is, is near and dear to his heart. And so then what he's done is just like extrapolated this into what if somebody got involved in this, and the motivations were bad and not good. Absolutely. And I love that he made this like satire of mochismo. Um, rather than make like a like a revenge thriller or some kind mm-hmm. of action movie out of it. Like he like Stearns is one of those guys that I feel like like this is the beginning of something larger. And it keeps on like he keeps mm-hmm. like with each project, he keeps on moving towards something. Like I'm a huge fan of Cub. You've seen Cub, right? Mm-hmm. And like, even though it has one of the most horrifying things like uh, that a dog owner could ever see, it's still like this amazing piece of work. And he continually just and Faults is really I, good. Oh gosh, Faults is like one of the best cult like like movies about a cult and deprogramming yep. Yep. that I've ever seen. And there's a and lot. So, of that and shit. I mean. And like a no budget kind of movie. Yeah. I mean, literally just film kind of in and around a motel mm -hmm. and, and that's about it. And, uh, it's a great film too. So honestly, it was, uh, my enjoyment of faults that made me just kind of immediately want to see this one. And this was actually one that the kind folks at, uh, uh, the Fantasia film festival got me access to. It was one of their headlining films. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I didn't have a chance to just pop up to Montreal. And, uh, so they were kind enough to, uh, to give me access to it. Uh, and it was, you know, obviously since it's on my list, one of the best things that I saw in 2019. Absolutely. And like, if I had, uh, if my list was a little bit different, it would probably have gone up because that was definitely in my top 25 to 30. Um, because it's it's that strong. I mean, it was a strong year. I keep on I like I keep on replaying it and like even as we're going through our list, I kind of like I I'm kind of amazed at how good the, the um the year was. So, so yeah. Uh, my number 14 is uh Jonathan Levine's Longshot, uh, starring uh yeah. Charlize Theron and Seth Rogen and a host of other people. Um the reason why this made number 14 for me is I like I think we've talked about this and I've talked about this on the podcast. I really dislike romantic comedies. I'm not a big fan of them. Um part of the reason is is because uh they there's a lot of shorthand um and shortcuts and lazy filmmaking within romantic comedies. People can come at me with that. I don't care. I'll tell you that the the most tired and true genre of of laziness is romantic comedy you you throw a song on you do a montage it, uh, and yep. they're in love no yeah you're exactly right <laughs> this movie um written by Dan Sterling and Liz Hanna and I know for a fact it's it's been out there they've all said that Liz Hanna is the 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 primary person that worked on this with Rogan Levine um, and Evan Goldberg, who is uh, Seth Rogen's producing, directing partner. Um, she worked on this for five years, and it shows. 
the movie is like, okay, now the thing that I, I always, I want to preface this is I think that a lot of people like they missed out on this movie because of the length. Like it's two, it's close to two twenty. but yeah. I'm going to counter with the thing that I said in my top, like in my, my top twenties about this, which is, is that that, that runtime is necessary to earn that romance. And I think that that's the biggest thing that's missing from romantic comedies is that they don't earn the relationship. Yeah. yeah they kind of shorthand it. Exactly. And so by the moment, like it's literally at an hour and five minutes is the big moment that come uh, that, that happens like when right they both look at each other and like, Oh shit. And then they kiss. And that moment is so earned because they spent the time with these two characters just getting to know one another. And then yep. by by default, we getting to know Fred and Charlotte. Um, it's it, it's one of those movies that goes a little like I, I will admit that it does go like it does go into the Apatow grossness in its last like 20 minutes to manufacture something. And I won't give away exactly what it is. But it's such a good, sweet romantic comedy. And I have to ask you, is it one of the best uses of a boss song that you've seen in a while? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that song, when it hits, I was kind of like, I was vibing. I was like, I like this. I like this a lot. I like the choice. I'm not going to ruin it for people. They have to actually see it because it's actually one of my favorite Springsteen songs. And it's the right tone because it's kind of it's it's a really funny it's like a really funny but romantic moment but a kind of like a hint of realism to it uh right. that the that the song plays out and um yeah it's just it's just a it's a good solid rom-com uh did you have any thoughts about it yeah oh no i agree with you it was one of those movies that you know because of just the romantic comedy label mm-hmm I didn't make a priority of getting to a critic screening or even going and seeing it in theaters. It was one that kind of initially passed me by. And I actually had a number of people saying, no, seriously, you know, as if to say, yeah, no, it's a romantic comedy, but seriously, it's really good. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, well, then I'll definitely have to give it a try. And so when it rolled around to digital, which, you know, these these days is all of about a 90 day window yep. uh, and you can get most things on digital. And I watched it and I was like, well, I will be damned. They are exactly right. Uh, this is this is a really good romantic comedy. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, the very concept of like meet cute is a shorthand way of talking about the shorthand way that rom-coms deal with the relationship. And so it's kind of like they meet cute and then we see them walking in the park holding hands or, you know, staring at each other over candlelight. And after some, you know, romantic song plays or whatever, another then boom, they're deeply in love with each other. And now we'll go on with the rest of the movie. And so this definitely avoids kind of, the ease of that, which, you know, I consider the cheat of that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and so consequently, you're more invested. You know, yeah. you're just more invested in the characters. I actually found myself caring about whether or not they would wind up with each other as opposed to looking at my watch and thinking, hmm, wonder when, you know, they're going to kiss and make up and this will be over. 
no, you know, that yeah, kind of thing. No, absolutely. And it's serious enough to where if it had ended with, like, if, if it ends with them not together, it would be completely valid. And I think that's where the tension comes at the last at, at the right. end of the at the end of the movie. Um, and I have to give a special shout out to Alexander Skarsgård, uh, playing, <laughs> playing the Prime Minister of Canada, and like who knew this like big hulking like really good looking dude could be like a freakish comic assassin, right? I, I mean just. Just the weirdness that comes out of him in this entire movie, with right. which amounts to about fifteen minutes of screen time. But like some of the biggest laughs I had were at his expense. Like he had no problem going as freakish as humanly possible. Yep. Um, yeah, him, it was really it was it was uh, up there uh, with Hustlers as like one of my favorite surprises of the year. Absolutely, something that at face value I looked at and said, nah, you know. Maybe it'll be okay. And instead, <laughs> it was like really good. Nope, absolutely. And uh, both um, both are on streaming now. Uh, um, if you have HBO, uh, you can actually watch. Uh, you can actually watch uh, Long Shot, and then um, the Art of Self Defense is actually on either Hulu or Amazon Prime. But you, you'll be able to find it there. And it's actually, I mean, you know, with Hulu, if you have the subscription, free. Amazon Prime, free too. So there's no excuses. Um, yeah, I think I think, uh, I think, think uh, Hulu is right on, on Art of Self-Defense. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm actually looking at it right now. And you're, yes, it is. It is Hulu. So no reason that you couldn't watch either one of these uh, really good comedies. So, uh, it, which brings us to our number, uh, to your number 13, because we already talked about my number 13, Les Miserables. So what was your number 13? Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll get a little festival circuit ish on everybody with with this <laughs> one. And and it's really it's intentional on my part. This is like, I think, just a super movie that nobody knows about. Nobody has heard of. I haven't seen it on anybody else's top 20 lists. Uh, but I wanted to include it just so that when it hits home video or has any kind of kind of accessibility to the general public, uh, people might know about it and want to see it. And it is a film called House of Hummingbird. Uh, and it is a film that once again, uh, I got to see thanks to the nice folks uh, at uh, Fantasia Fest. And um, it, it it's a super film. Uh, the uh, the film is uh, set in South Korea, uh, and it's by a South Korean filmmaker. You know, South Korean cast uh, and and subtitled and everything like that. But don't let that frighten you off. And it's really the story of a young girl growing up in a society that is still very patriarchal, mm-hmm. and where she's very much kind of on the periphery of her family. You know, it's almost like yeah. being a supporting player in your own life. You know, uh, the, the main character uh, is your older brother. You know, we're worried about his education. We're worried about, you know, his prospects uh, and everything like that. We're not worried about you. Uh, it has a portrayal of domestic violence at times that is so matter of fact that I think you could almost say that the movie really isn't about that. 
but but I mean, it's just something like like you know she'll do something the brother doesn't like it and he'll just haul off and wholesale slap her in the face. Oh wow! And and the dad will say, "Are you going to hit your sister in front of me?" You know, not not are you? Yeah. But but you know, you, you're going to do that in front of me. That should be done, you know, behind closed doors or something. It's as it's as if it's like an accepted kind of thing. And there's this one section that was just kind of of heartbreaking where uh, she uh, she finds kind of like a, a little like a knot or something like a almost like a tumor like thing in her neck and winds up going to the doctor and having it all dealt with by herself. Oh, and she's God. like 14, 13. <sighs> wow. And so, I mean, like literally like she's just so not thought of as being that important by her family that she's out there getting on the bus by herself, going, getting this biopsy done. And so it's just this tale of, of this, this little gal who's been just kind of marginalized by her family, by her society. And, and it's also a tale of her kind of growing independence. And so it's just, it's, it's a remarkable performance by uh, the young lady who plays the lead um, I think her name is Jiyoon Park. Yes, it and, is. And, uh, and she, uh, she was just tremendous. I mean, if nothing else, watch the movie just for her performance, but it's just, it's got these really sweet moments that aren't sappy. Uh, and it has some moments that you'll just almost be horrified by the way that she's treated. And so it was just one of those kind of just slap in the face, gut punch, just out of nowhere, hard hitting, uh, kind of films. And I hadn't, I mean, I didn't even know going into it, what it was really about. It was just one of the central films of the, uh, Fantasia fest lineup. And so I trust their curators and their programmers and, uh, they usually put on a really good festival. And so I was like, yeah, if you guys are playing that, I definitely would love to see it. And it was just a, a knockout. And so, uh, so I put it on my list, not because anybody's seen it, uh, probably, but because nobody has probably seen it. Uh, I put it on my list so that maybe somebody who's listening to this podcast will come across it uh, on a streaming service or a rental service and say, yeah, I think that's that, that movie that he was talking about. I'll give it a try uh, because it's just really a, a fantastic indie film. I mean, it's just kind of like the heart of what you think of when you think of an indie film, like a filmmaker you don't really know, a cast that you don't really know, and they just knock you out. So, so it's it's super Absolutely. I've already put it like when you when you had mentioned it to me, I had put it on my list. I actually did try to look for it, um, but it has not it has not made its appearance yet um, on any of the streaming services I have, which like this kind of film is designed for streaming service discovery. So yep. um, my hope is, is that either the, it'll get a release or like a streaming service will pick it up somebody like Mubi. Um, who's a yeah, great exactly uh, curated um brand? Um, there's a couple of, I mean, there are still some boutique labels that actually release physical media that are aimed directly at um like Korean or Asian cinema like this. So my hope is is that somebody it will find a home because, like you know, when you whenever you tell me about something like this and it strikes you, I know that it's gold. So hopefully somebody can somebody will release this um, um, and we'll hear more from the writer director Bora Kim 
So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it's one of those things of, you know, one of the great measure, one of the measures of, of the greatness, I think of a film, uh, which I think, you know, our entire top 20 and then some, uh, would, it would apply to is as soon as it ends, you're thinking, I'm going to see that again. Yeah. And, and that was the way that I was with House of a Hummingbird. Or your immediate thought is, oh, I've got to show this to my wife. Or I've got to show this uh, to the film society that I lead. Or I've got to show this to whomever. You know, you immediately feel this desire to share it with other people, uh, to see it again. You know, I mean, I mean, a lot of times critics are, you know, just like, quote unquote, regular people. Uh, <laughs> in the sense of, you know, we're not always watching technique and things like that. I mean, hopefully we get absorbed in the narrative as well. And so then I find myself on like second viewings thinking, I really want to see what he did to get me to feel this way. And, and you watch it, in my opinion, from kind of like a different perspective. I know what happens. Um, I know the arcs of the characters. And so this time I'm going to watch just to see how the filmmaker put this together. And so uh, I look forward to having that opportunity because it's it's really a stellar movie. Absolutely. Um, it, it kind of reminds me of when you, um, when you told me about um, Columbus. Uh, not the yeah, not the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great <laughs> comparison. Absolutely, and how you flip for it, and it just instantly uh, drove me to to uh, to find it. And you know, it's just like you know, Columbus is one of those knockout films that I feel like you know it, it like this undiscovered, and people are slowly discovering that one. I hope that like I hope that I, we can get a chance to discover this one. So, yeah, well, you know, and, and, and like I would mm -hmm. like I would advise people, you know, just as a little film festival advice, mm -hmm. if you get a chance to go to a film festival, whatever it may be, and they have like the big picture that's going to come out in every theater across the country three months from now. Yep. Or they have the obscure little films like this, you know, go see the ones that don't have distribution. Go see the ones that are kind of the rarity because, yeah, it's cool to be like, oh, I saw Jojo Rabbit three months before it came out or whatever, which happens at the festivals that I go to. But, you know, you're going to get a chance to see Jojo Rabbit or a Knives Out or mm -hmm. a whatever might have been playing that festival. So instead, look at what's programmed opposite that if you have, you know, a festival that does that. Yeah. And go check one of those out. Because, you know, I always look for the foreign films, the documentaries, you know, kind of the little engine that could kind of films because they may not get distribution. I have films that I saw at Fantastic Fest three years ago that have never seen the light of day and they were great. So that is always my advice to people, especially if you've gone to a festival a few times and and kind of gotten that, you know, initial excitement uh, of those first few years of maybe seeing something early and stuff like that is, uh, you know, go for the obscure because uh, oftentimes at those film festivals, you'll be rewarded because those programmers know what they're doing. And those those other choices don't stink by comparison. They're just not the big names. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, we've talked about that numerous times. It's like it becomes down to it, it comes down to early release or seeing something that you may never see on the big screen. I think we both agree that we kind of 
unless it's something that you desperately want to see right away, you always kind of side with the let's go ahead and take the, uh, you know, uh, take the ticket and take the ride into the unknown on the big screen. Because oftentimes, like you said, uh, programmers know what they're doing. They're gun. You're going to be rewarded. It may not it may not initially feel like that sometimes. But upon reflection, I always find that the choices that I've made that were the things where like the big thing was sold out or it's lines around the block. And I went, okay, you know what? I'm just going to go in and see this is the thing that ends up being like some of my festival darlings. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So with that, uh, it's not on streaming uh, that I could find, but just keep your eyes out for, uh, for this film. I think that we're going to be rewarded once we get to, uh, we get to see this. Um, on to our number 12, and I say ours because we talked a little bit about the our list, and wouldn't you know, our number 12 is the same movie. Um, I'll let yeah. you take it away, Scott, and tell them what our number 12 is. Yeah, it's uh, it's Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out Us uh, from, uh, gosh, what was it, February? February. March? It was, yep. yeah, it was, it was early in the year, uh, which I think is going to, potentially be unfortunate for Lupita Nyong'o uh, because, I mean, she was, I mean, she and, and Florence Pugh and, and a couple of other people, uh, you know, gave the best performances of the year. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, you got the problem of it's a horror film. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as we discussed before, you know, that kind of horror ghetto, so to speak, that these films can can get put in. Uh, and, but it's just a amazing performance by her. The whole cast is great, but she's just the, the focus, you know I mean? She's the, she's doing the heavy lifting, uh, of the movie, but the, the child actors are good. Uh, just everybody is good in this movie. And, uh, and Jordan Peele, you know, just proves that, you know, he, he can kind of do anything. I mean, he's, you know, no sophomore slump here. No, uh, you know, get out was in my top 10 and this just barely missed my top 10. And, uh, this was a, I mean, to me, this was a packed out year. If you made it into my top 20, uh, it was like making it into my top 10 in previous years. Absolutely. Uh, and, and so it's just tremendous. And it's one of those movies that it's just got everything firing on all cylinders. I mean, from the script, uh, and, you know, kind of the subtext that the story is getting at, uh, to the production design, to that incredible score. I mean, it's just like every department on this movie kind of hit a home run. And so uh, the whole is is definitely the sum of, of all of its incredible parts. Absolutely. Um, I almost feel like us, like as a sophomore, like as a sophomore effort, like, like what I find funny is, is that we're talking about 11 through 20 and us feels like an 11 through 20 movie, like the 11 through 20 movie, um, because it's a sophomore film. And I feel like your sophomore film is that movie that you spread your wings and you take your shot because right. you're like, you know, if you've worked inside the studio system, you're constrained on your first film, you don't have final cut. I mean, that's not the case with Jordan Peele. He had final cut on uh, get out, but it was because it was such a minimal budget. This is a much larger budget, a bigger, like a much bigger um, canvas that he's painting on, which initially you don't think, but the brilliant part about the movie is how it's like a concentric circle and it keeps on getting wider and wider and wider until the end. When you realize what his end game is, 
Um, and it's funny because so this movie shares a lot with my number uh, my number three movie climax in where it's at the beginning there's a static shot of a TV playing something and I'm pretty sure because climax came out or climax was uh, was written and directed in 2018 and was released in 2019 in a, in the US. I'm pretty sure Jordan Peele saw this saw um uh saw climax and is kind of having a conversation with Gaspar No in the way that he set up his static shot because the one thing that you have to pay attention to in this movie is the opening moment. There's a reason why he spends five minutes on this or like three minutes on this opening static shot and allows you to see a bunch of ephemera there. Pay attention to the ephemera because that ephemera is so important to the grander scheme of the movie and what he's what he's doing. And if you can, you're going to be really rewarded your first time. Um, But it's like like. Filmmakers that go into their second, like, I feel like their second movie, it's all about their fetishes. It's all about wanting to get out the fetishes, much like 11 through 20 is for us. Um, do you feel like this is more of like a, okay, so I did the important film. I'm still going to do important, but I'm going to layer so much stuff that I want to say about cinema, about culture, but I'm going to, like, put it undercover like that's how i feel that us is yeah no definitely uh, uh definitely i think that uh you know it's 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 very nicely layered you know and and it reminds me in a way uh of parasite you oh, know the yeah. bong joon ho uh film because you can just watch it as a genre film Mm -hmm. You know, it's like with Bong Joon-ho, you know, you can, uh, you know, all of his films really, but especially Parasite, uh, you can just watch it as a thriller, you know, or, or with us, you can watch it as kind of a horror movie thriller, uh, kind of thing. But if you want to look deeper and if you want to look at, you know, the symbolism, uh, and what some of these things are saying about society, about class, uh, about opportunity, about kind of the haves and the have nots. Uh, in the world and maybe the fine line that separates them from one another, uh, that is all there. And so, and that is where I think that, you know, Jordan Peele kind of, uh, really succeeds, uh, is that it's not just a surface level, uh, kind of, of experience. There's a lot more to be gotten there, especially, you know, if you want to have repeated viewings of it. Absolutely. And that's how he's able to like, like to me, the, the sign of a, of an amazing filmmaker and what he's, what, what he or she is doing is the supporting cast. And if you look at this supporting cast, I mean, just Elizabeth Moss alone, you should know that this is something that's, that's going to be an elevated piece of pop cinema. Uh, because somebody like Elizabeth Moss doesn't attach herself to something commercially unless it's like it, it it rises to her talents. Like that's what makes me so excited about The Invisible Man is that of all the people that Lee Winnell could get, he decided mm -hmm. to to get uh, to get Elizabeth Moss, but then yep. not only get like go after Elizabeth Moss, but he got her. And if I could make one suggestion, like a side thing that I, a side movie that 
I just couldn't find any place to put into my list. And I'm, I don't know if you've seen it is Alex Ross Perry's Her Smell. Yes. Yes. Like if you like rock movies, like this is the movie to mm-hmm. see, like, yep. especially if you like 90s grunge, if you're like into 90s grunge women, like girl bands, I hate using the word girl, but like, you know what I meant? Like, <laughs> right. it's such a specific Alex Ross Perry made a such a specific movie and Elizabeth Moss hits it out of the park in yep. a very tricky role. And yep. I I, like again, this just shows the 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 bountifulness of 2019 that an Alex Ross Perry movie doesn't show up in anywhere on my list. Yeah, no, you're exactly right, and and it's a great film, and it's been on a ton of people's top ten lists. Yes. Uh, so you know, yet another you know example of you know you could come up with I could you know thirty plus contenders uh, <laughs> to be in my top twenty. Absolutely, both of those. Uh, both us and her smell are available on HBO, their streaming service. Or if you ah, if cool. you just catch it on HBO, you can catch it on HBO. But both of them are on the streaming HBO Go or HBO Now, whichever one you have. Um, so that leaves us to our number elevens. Um, why don't we go ahead and I'll have you talk about your number eleven, and then I'll talk about mine. Uh, I mean, we'll yeah, we'll sure. have a conversation exactly. Yeah, my uh, my number eleven is the last black man in San Francisco, <sighs> and uh, this was just one of those, you know, kind of like House of Hummingbird, uh, in the sense of uh, just being a knockout of a film, just like a almost like a sucker punch from a filmmaker. Just you know, you just didn't expect uh, the the power of uh, of what you were going to see. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it deals with, uh, you know, kind of gentrification, uh, in San Francisco, a young man who is very attached, uh, to a home there in kind of a historic district in San Francisco. Uh, his family evidently lost that home at some point over the years. Uh, and he still feels very proprietary over it. His grandfather built it. Uh, it's just kind of somewhat defines who he is and what he thinks about his place in the world. Uh, and so uh, it centers in and around uh, this character uh, and his effort to, in in some strange way, kind of almost like restore the house or work on the house, mm-hmm. you know, even though he doesn't own it. No, and, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, and it's so funny. I mean, there's there are even scenes where like the current owners are like, "Stop, stop that!" And he's like outside giving them a new paint job. Exactly. You know, no. you know, and they're like, "Go away, go away!" And it's like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, I wish I could find a guy who wanted to come paint my house <laughs> uh, for um, the fun of it or for the commitment of it or what have you. And uh, but it but it's a lot. You know, it's a lot more than that. I mean, that's kind of the surface level uh, premise of the film. But you know, it, it very much deals with you know, kind of creative type people and people who, you know, feel a calling to, uh, to be artists or to, uh, you know, be involved in the arts because, you know, one of the characters is also a playwright and, and a writer and, and, and feels like, you know, he wants to put on these productions and, and kind of speak these truths through art. And so there's a very meta quality to the to the movie with that because that's exactly what the movie is doing. The movie is speaking its truths through the art uh, of a motion picture, and so it's just it's got you know great cinematography. Uh, the performances are fantastic, and so it's just another one of those 
experiences of, I didn't know any of the people involved in this going into it, you know, yeah. wasn't familiar with the director, wasn't familiar with the cast members. Uh, and it just, uh, just blew me away. Now, I mean, the one thing to prepare yourself for is it's a slower tempo film. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of times people use the word slow to be like the equivalent of boring. And, uh, and that's not how I mean that slow to me is what I just said. It's a tempo. It's the way the movie unfolds. And so it's very much, you know, just kind of ambles along. It's not in a huge hurry to get to any kind of particular plot beats, uh, to tell a particular story, you know, in, in a quick kind of manner, it, it just unfolds. You get to just spend time with these characters and, uh, and I think it's just, you know, uh, an incredibly moving film and the fact that what these guys are in, like, I don't know, the early twenties or something. Yeah, they're, they're, they're in their like mid twenties. Yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I am thankful that you you put this on your list because it was something that I watched on Amazon Prime. It's actually included on Amazon Prime. Thank you, A24, uh, for, yes, exactly. for your for your commitment to streaming because um it's it's a beautiful movie. Um I I was struck by it be, because of its gentle like its gentle manner. Like I like it was interesting because it it's it feels like a Hal Ashby film. In a lot of ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It, uh, it does. And um, it's just there's this uncommon humanity to the film. And like you were saying, it there's a there's a pace to it. I wouldn't call it a slow. I wouldn't call it slow paced. I would just say it's paced to allow you to. Like what I like how I feel about it is the way that Hal Ashby does things, which is, is that he slows things down to a point to where you begin to feel like you've spent more than just two hours with a character. You've spent weeks and months with these people and you come to get to know them um, through this kind of filmmaking technique. And, yeah, that's that's a really good way to look at it. Like yeah. the idea of being immersed in their lives for longer than just the two hour runtime. Absolutely. There's yeah, it's it, it's something that I appreciate that I feel like filmmakers don't do a lot of anymore. And uh, Joe Talbot, the director and co-writer um, and his star, uh, Jimmy Fails, uh, who's also a co-writer on the film. Um, yeah, they're just they're they're uncommonly old souls because i feel like this movie says a lot that even people even filmmakers twice their age could never muster through 10 films um like if right. like if last if if this is their only movie damn that's a good that that's a good only movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly because i exactly I, we hope it's just a starting point exactly uh, but yeah, no, you're right. It's it's just one of those kind of, you know, unexpectedly delightful movies from just out of nowhere. Absolutely. And um, I mean, really big kudos. Like, I feel like like what I like, this is the kind of stuff that I like that Brad Pitt is doing. Like he put his name on this film to get it out there, to give it the push. Yep. Yep. And like if you it. Like if you know who Brad Pitt is as a producer and you see some of the films that he's produced, much like Robert De Niro, he takes a back seat but gives it enough push to where 
it puts it into the spotlight and but it also he doesn't make it like Brad Pitt presents and I really appreciate right. that I really yep. do um and it's I like 12 years a slave yeah you know exactly you know and 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 even then you know you could say well Steve McQueen was was a known quantity in the sense of being a quality filmmaker at that point uh but he still wasn't a big commercial name no and so he, it, it once again took kind of the heft of somebody with a little bit of pull uh, to get that movie made. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And like I could totally see like this is like when you get like when you look at his his work as a producer, you can kind of see his taste in films. And this definitely falls in his taste. And I could totally see him working with Jimmy Fails and Joe Talbot like in a star like in a co-starring capacity in their next work to make sure that they get that next work and like that that's the most exciting thing about like about this movie that I felt like after I saw it I was like wow this is like this is uncommonly humane and human I really want to see what these guys do next like I really want to see what they have to say because they have a lot to say about important topics I mean yeah they do and it's not, you know, like I'm talking about it like it's like it's this really big artistic venture. It's a it's an entertaining movie. It is a it's not like it's homework. It's really not like I was pleasantly surprised at how I'm not going to call it breezy, but how how much like like it would be almost like a companion piece with Patterson, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. the the Jim Jarmusch film I think that we both like we really liked um, where it's just a slice of life and we don't get that enough in cinema is like not working class cinema but this the cinema of like the cinema of, like like normcore I guess you could call it I know that's a disgusting word because like last black uh, last black man in San Francisco is so much more artful and beautiful um, and produced than something like that. But like, it really did knock me out. Like, I, I'm really glad that you, you had mentioned it and you put this on your list and like, you know, like I, I took the time to actually watch it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you didn't have the likes of, you know, Ryan Johnson, Noah Baumbach, uh, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Martin Scorsese, Bong Joon-ho, some of those people at the absolute top of their game at the same year that this came out, this certainly would have been in my top 10. And so, you know, dropping those names gives you an idea of what my top 10 looks like. Uh, but, you know, it's like just because the competition was so stiff, uh, this winds up at number 11, uh, but, you know, in many other years, it could have easily wound up like a number five or six. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, again, it is it is streaming on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend you guys take a look at this film. I, I don't think that you'll be disappointed um, if you're in the least bit um, uh, willing to give something new a chance. And you mentioned Ryan Johnson. So my number 11 is... The <laughs> it is the Ryan Johnson who done it knives out. Um, nice. <laughs> it, I know I, it's funny because it's my number ten. <laughs> there you go. There you, you go. Know, you know. I, um, like it's it's just a good good time. Like, uh, there's this movie is the is just 
it's just one of those films that from the opening moment to the closing of like credits and the closing musical cue, you know the filmmaker that you're in the hands of if you've watched a Ryan Johnson film. Um, and, but this is like him working on a different level. I feel like, like, it's so funny because I feel like this was, I mean, and from what I've read, this is kind of, this is like an antidote to what he went through on the last Jedi. I mean, anybody like he'll never admit it, but the last Jedi, he went through a hell of a time. I mean, I know that there's a lot of us that stand for that movie. Like, I mean, we stand hard for that. I mean, like, you know, I think we've we've had that conversation about how right great that that film is. It's not even like yeah. a good Star Wars film. It's just a great film. Um, yep. but you know, getting put through the ringer. I mean, what you what you actually naturally do is like. I mean, at least in my estimation, is you kind of. It's not that you revert back, but you go to something that you know that like you know that you're good at and that you know everything about and Johnson made his career on crime films I mean right we're like I know that at the um at your film society this month you're actually showing Brick his first film yep Uh, absolutely (laughs) a film that was literally made with bits and pieces and an amazing piece of cinema. Like, if you've not seen Brick, which I highly doubt that you haven't, go see it. And then watch The Brothers Bloom. Um, yep. And then watch Looper. All three of them are crime films. But their entryways into crime are very unique. The same way that Knives is a whodunit that there's an entryway into it that is so meta that allows him to make commentary about so much. But done with the the lightest of touch touches like um yeah like I, I like i told i told somebody uh like a really geeky film geek friend of mine i told him i'm like there's going to be a point where we're probably going to have to talk about the ryan johnson touch like in the same way that we like that like back in the day they talked about the lubitsch touch like right. billy wilder always talked about that and then there's the wilder touch well like Ryan Johnson, there is a touch that he has. There's this ineffable thing that he does that just makes things not snarky, genuine, and you kind of love him for it. It's like a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a it's like a sweater or a Labrador in a sweater. You can't help but love it, even yep. if it's even if it's you're dealing with the most terrible people, like he is in this movie and. Very much so right. like a compliment to Parasite in the way it deals yeah. with the yeah, haves really and half-nots. Um, I wanted... It, uh, the the thing that, that I like so much about Knives Out mm-hmm. is it's a great example of the genre that it is representing. But then it's also a great deconstruction of that genre at the same time. Absolutely. And... And that's hard to do because usually one of those things suffers. You know, it either descends into kind of like parody. And so it's not a good example of the actual thing. It's like a spoof of that thing, uh, you know, or it's a good example of the thing, but the deconstruction is kind of weak. And so this movie is just 
perfectly balanced between giving you this good whodunit and then also intentionally subverting some of those tropes and going in directions that you wouldn't expect it to go because it's trying to throw off the people who love those kind of movies to begin with. So it's like this great acknowledgement of the intelligence of the audience. Absolutely. I know you're going to think that I'm going to go this way. So I'm going to go this way. (laughs) And then there are even moments where it's like, you think I'm going to go this way and that then I'm going to go this way. So instead I'll go this third way and still fool you. So it's like this, this screenplay that is just always a step ahead of even the most astute viewers. And so that's a really hard thing uh, to do and, and not kind of lose your credibility, not just descend into ridiculousness and have people be like, oh, well, I mean, geez, if that's the answer to this whole thing, then whatever. And so, you know, you don't ever want people to leave feeling cheated, you know, like, well, mm-hmm. yeah, you kind of fooled me on that. But it was, you know, the Scooby-Doo ending, you know, zoinks, it's the maintenance man <laughs> or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, and so, you know, we we don't descend into any of that. It's just it is really a nice little kind of chess match of a movie between him and the viewers. Um, no, absolutely. And um, it's some really bold storytelling. Like, I love the fact that you like the, the like there's no like it's a whodunit. But realistically, you're you're kind of told up front who did it, if that makes sense. But the way that he does this construction of this this perfectly built house is it's it's kind of amazing um i've watched it a couple of times because i like the construction of it um because it kind of folds into itself um in a weird in this kind of great way that you don't like if you tried to explain it to somebody it doesn't make sense but when you watch it unfold because of how he does it it works perfectly yeah, it uh, well, you know, it's kind of like the moments that you expect in those kinds of movies that then don't happen. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's a moment where everybody is gathered. You know, this is the patriarch has died. You know, all the family are are suspects. It's kind of one of these closed environment kind of of mysteries. You know, the murderer has to be in the room, mm-hmm. and they're all assembled for this big kind of disclosure. And you're thinking, here it is. This is where the detective walks in and tells everybody, you know, here's what happened, you know, going to break it down for you and then unmask the person who did it. And instead, just as that meeting can get off the ground, the detective comes in and goes, hang on just a second and literally just shuts it down. You know, as if, nope, we're not going to have this conversation right now. And he grabs one of the characters and leaves the room. (laughs) And so it's kind of like, you know, and you thought, oh, man, this is the moment. This is the big, you know, Hercule Poirot, you know, unmasking of the murderer moment. And he knows that's what you're thinking that that is. And then all of a sudden, boop, no, it's not. And and that's just, you know, the the way that this movie uh, handles the genre as it builds you up to this point and your expectations are, oh, I know what's coming next. And then you're just completely wrong. Absolutely. And one of the best casts of the last five years, let's just put it out there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's it's just perfect. (laughs) When you have when you're like when you're like 12 cast members deep and your 12th cast member is Lakeith Stanfield, who like we didn't we haven't talked about Uncut Jebs, but like is one of the 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 steel like scene stealers of of that movie with how raw and like just raw and like real he is in that movie coming over to here and just like between him and Noah Segan as the one two combo of the police it's just like you gotta you, you have to appreciate that 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 this is how deep this movie goes um and I mean are you like I have but to it's, ask it's it's okay. the- yeah, it's the most the kind of film that the the SAG award for like best ensemble was created for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I do have to ask you, how excited are you that that Ryan Johnson has decided with Daniel Craig that they're going to make a sequel to this film? Oh, it's it I'm I'm thrilled, you know. I mean, I hoped that just I mean, it's 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 like taking my cynical observation and then and then it turning into something good because mm-hmm. I was like, come on, this thing's making so much money. There's no way they can walk away from this thing and not make a sequel. But you enjoyed it so much. You enjoyed the character so much. There's so many different places that they could go with it. And Ryan Johnson is certainly the person capable of doing it that, you know, once it crossed that $200 million global box office mark. Uh, and the rumors started coming out that, you know, there may be another Benoit Blanc, you know, movie. There may be somewhere for us to take this, you know, maybe a sequel is a good idea. That kind of thing to then have all of those rumors uh, essentially confirmed. You know, you're hoping that the formula will remain, that they'll have another big, super deep cast uh, in some interesting location. And, uh, you know, we got... Uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, 10 little Indians or that's probably a bad comparison because there's only one person who died. But, you know, <laughs> uh, the next one will get, you know, the murder on the Orient Express kind of thing. But, you Absolutely. know, it'll it'll, you know, move in a in a different direction and, and bring us another really uh, interesting mystery. Uh, one can hope one can honestly hope uh, it's it's the most delightful piece of news that's come out in the last couple of days um, that we've like, you know, as we're recording this um, that I found like I was like, you know, there's and I think I even tweeted. I was like, I'd much rather have Ryan Johnson coming up with uh, Benoit Blanc mysteries than him going back to star wars and making another trilogy and that's the god's honest truth um yeah absolutely absolutely i would much rather see some kind of a original uh storytelling coming out of him than uh you know being um stuck in some kind of fictional universe i mean you know uh existing uh universe uh whatever it may be any franchise absolutely and with that, guys, we're done. We're done with our um, our 2019, 11 through 20. Uh, this has been a blast, Scott. It really has been. Yeah, yeah, I've really enjoyed doing it. I think it was a, an interesting experiment. And uh, I think the proof is in the pudding when I said that, you know, 11 through 20 is, is kind of the more interesting and more unique. Because I think between the two of us, we probably had 18 different films. I think yeah, we only we have don't... just a couple of overlaps. Yeah, I think us we just and have... Les Yep, Les Miserables and us. That was the only yep. two. Those are yep. the only two. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's what's fun about doing this part of of, of the list is I'm sure that we would have had many, many more overlaps in a one through ten. Absolutely. That's exactly what I was thinking when I started to see the list come together. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I don't know if Scott and I are going to have the same the same things, but I know that we would have some of the same things in our tent. I I even looked. I think we have at least six common films in our top uh, in yep. our top ten. Which, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Nah, it doesn't at yeah. all. Like not and to so me. That, <laughs> yeah, so that makes that makes I think this uh, kind of a fun little exercise. And to tell you the truth, it's something that I've kind of taken to doing. Uh, is I'm more interested when I look at other critics' lists. At, you know, what is their 11 through 20, or if they went all the way to 25. You know, looking through those, seeing if I can find some. Uh, you know, their equivalent of a House of Hummingbird, just something that nobody else is throwing out there. And see if I can find something interesting to watch off of their lists. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so with that, Scott, uh, where can people find you on the Internet and social media? Um, and I know you've got a review coming up. Uh, you've got a you've got a television review. Uh, Want to kind of preview it, like give us a little hint of what you're talking about this week? Yeah, I uh, I do uh, video reviews for wrbl.com it's the cbs affiliate in columbus georgia and so uh this week i am doing a review of just mercy uh the new film with uh, jamie fox and michael b jordan about somebody who has been wrongfully imprisoned on death row in alabama and uh, I actually got to tape it twice because i mistakenly referred to it as no mercy all through the first time that i taped it uh, and the producer caught it before they posted it, and I got to go in and do it again because for some reason I can't remember the title of that movie, <laughs> even though it's really good. Uh, so anyway, so the correct version of that review uh, will be at WRBL.com uh, this week. Uh, and then uh, at WRBL.com, you can find the screen scene, which is the name of the segment that I do. And there's a good, I don't know, 12, 15 reviews in there at this point. Uh, and then you can find me on Twitter at M Scott underscore Phillips uh, is where I post my links to stuff and information about festivals and other critics work. And, you know, I share lots of stuff that is not generated by me on my Twitter feed, uh, things that interest me during the course of the week. So um, what about you? Where can they find you? Absolutely. They can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can uh, it would be. I, I'm going to direct you guys to uh, the B Movie Podcasts uh, Twitter handles uh, and uh, Instagram. Uh, it's just uh, B Movie Pod, the letter B, the word movie, the word pod, all together, no lines, no dashes, no bullshit. Um, you can uh, check us out there, where I post all of the all of the goings ons of the B Movie Podcast. Uh, we. Uh, you can also find um, the site that uh, our site, uh, the movie aisle on social media. It's the movie aisle uh, on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can go ahead and follow those for the latest drops on the podcast reviews, um, all the likes that you uh, all the all the good stuff that you would possibly want. Um, we will be back in probably a few weeks we've we've got something we we know that we owe you the bong juho episode we we, uh, we definitely know that we've been uh we've just been a little delayed on that i can assure you that we will be talking about that because uh we're kind of fully invested in i kind of almost want to wait to see if he gets an oscar nom i mean he's got a dga award yeah that would 
that would make it interesting. Absolutely. Like I, I kind of want. We're making good use of the time. We're we're rewatching and and exactly. brushing up on some things that we haven't seen in a few years. So uh, hopefully that will help the final product. Absolutely. And if I can get my hands on a damn out of print copy of uh, Memories of Murder, that would help a great deal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it would. I can't believe that one isn't already just readily available. Right. Um, like a weird side. Such st- a classic. It is like it, it's a, a weird side story. I like the the uh, the movie. I, the movie aisle follows uh, this this great South Korean um, cinema store uh, called uh, the Plain Archive. And they're constantly posting things. And we talk to them like via via Instagram, liking their stuff. They like us. We DM them every once in a while. I saw that they had posted Memories of Murder DVD. And so like I, I instantly started talking to them, seeing if they had the South Korean Blu-ray and to see if I could like, you know, because I could purchase it and then I could get have it sent out to me and hopefully in time so that I could actually watch it. Unfortunately, they informed me that the South Korean Blu-ray of Memories of Murder is out of print. And we had this long conversation about the fact that this is a travesty that even in South Korea, that movie is not available on Blu-ray. Um, that is crazy. I, I mean, I have like an old, you know, DVD copy that I managed uh, not to go broke getting on eBay uh, at one point. But uh but uh, I, I've never had a, a Blu-ray of it either. Yeah. Uh, there's supposedly an American Blu-ray release uh, from Magnolia that came and went like the wind. Um, wow. which is Which is odd because Magnolia is the people that released both Mother and the host. And they're both readily available on Blu-ray. So it's... It's definitely one of those things where it's just like, oh, I would die for a good stream, a streaming uh, version of that movie, which, again, not available. So but it's all to say, guys, we we're waiting for I'm literally waiting for the Oscars to see how Parasite does, because I really do hope that they really do. They 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 really do give this movie the love that it deserves and then we'll kind of talk for we'll we'll talk bang juho but like you said we've been making good time of it and you guys are getting bonus episodes after bonus episodes because the next one is me and marie talking about the 2010s um and our 2010s lists that posted which are completely different than one another i think we maybe have two things in common so that's going to be an interesting conversation to say the least. Nice. So, Sounds good. Absolutely. So with that, guys, thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, I'm gonna take my horse through the old town road. I'm gonna ride till I can't no more. I'm gonna take my through the old town road I'm gonna ride till I can't no more I got the horses in the back Horse stock is attached Head is matted black Got the bushes black to match Riding on a horse ha, You can whip your Porsche I've been in the valley You ain't been up off that porch Now can't nobody tell me Baby, you can go and ask me. My life is a movie, but right.
across town living like a rock star spend a lot of money on my brand new guitar baby's got a habit diamond rings and fendi sports bras riding down rodeo in my maserati sports car got no stress i've been 